0: Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, lads and lassies, and those that don't subscribe to a gender, welcome to the GOT Got Questions podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Oh, Spencer, they've missed you. What has it been? Three weeks.
1: What were we doing with our lives?
0: Three weeks. They've missed you so bad. Our inbox has been flooded. <laughs> uh, you know, you I request I, to know exactly what you're doing with your life.
1: When, when you say flooded, do you mean like one really long message? Because I can't picture more than two.
0: Uh, well, my wife asked about you, so <laughs>
1: <My> <laughs> Okay, that, that, that's a start, that's a start, give Sarah my regards
0: Yeah, so um, if you listen to uh, the Whiskey on the Weekends podcast, which is a podcast here on the Mangum Talk channel or uh, Mangum Reads I've mentioned on both of those podcasts now that the, the GOT Got Questions podcast, we concluded our Season 7 coverage We're jumping back into Season 1 Part of the reason we're doing this is a bit self-serving Spencer and I love Season 1 Spencer, go nuts Tell the people what you like about season one.
1: How can I even fully express the nature of love? I mean, are words fully capable of encapsulating a truly emotional response to just the utter craft and dedication to bringing the proper source to life? I mean, it's wonderfully acted, it's perfectly cast. The set design, location design were on point from the get go. It's a perfectly done adaptation that both. Shows full respect, directly word for word does some scenes, but also goes in its own way in a way that is true to the mythos and actually has the craft and dedication and the responsibility to have a plan for how they're going to make the changes work. It is a as close to perfect adaptation of source material as I've ever seen, and I adore it wholeheartedly. And yet I will still find ways on book nerd bitching to complain at least a little bit. I'm contractually required to do so.
0: I'm glad you brought up book nerd bitching. So... If you're uh, you a little hazy on our format, or if this is the first time you're joining us on the GOT Got Questions podcast, we have a format here. First, we go through a recap. Pretty exhaustive. And then we will select best... Well, I will select best line of the episode. Uh, I And I do I do that alone. And then Spencer has a segment he calls Book Nerd Bitching, where he talks about differences between the show and the books uh, that he takes issues with. Oh, So, uh, Spencer, anything you want to add before we jump into our recap?
1: Um, there, I was... I've watched the first season more than I've watched any of the seasons. And so I was kind of going into this with a certain amount of, okay, it's a job. I'll watch it again. It'll be fine. And I forgot how much I like it. I forgot how good it really truly is. This is going to be a pleasure to go go through these 10 episodes again.
0: Yeah. So if you listen to the GOT Cop Questions podcast, uh, our coverage of season seven, episode six, uh, Beyond the Wall was... I'm going to go out on a limb here, Spencer, and say negative. <laughs> uh, negative
1: is a nice euphemistic way of going through the disdain we were shooting the, the uh, producers and directors way. Yeah.
0: You're not going to get that for season one. You're going to get a lot of positivity from us. We're looking forward to it. So, Spencer, let's jump right in. Game on. Season one, episode one, is titled Winter is Coming. We start with a cold opening. Not many. We, this is the first episode, right? so it's cold opening Oh, well, literal get many yeah we don't get many yeah, it, don't get, <laughs> it's funny we don't get many cold openings in this show so this is one of maybe two or three that they've ever done yes spencer nice pun uh it's it a literal a cold open literally is a cold open because we start north of the wall and we start with uh, uh three rangers leaving uh out of the gates of castle black going north of the wall they ride for a little bit they come upon what they think are wild uh, dead wildlings and they think other wildlings did it and, they, and right off the bat you get the sort of like disdain for the wildlings i think one guy says something like one one of them steals a goat from another one and they hack each other to bits
2: yeah
0: uh so all right, i mean off jump street you know showing that they think that the wildlings are savages they push on but then they come upon the same place again and the dead bodies are gone one of the guys starts sort of fishing around in the snow and he pulls out what entrails or a heart Spencer you have an idea what he pulled out it's some human organ or body part or something i, I kind of interpret
1: it as like a bloody rag it looked cloth like to me but it clearly is a sign that though there's only there's nothing but fresh snow atop what was previously a scene of carnage right below the surface all of it is there to be found
0: yeah and then the white Walkers attack.
1: Um, <laughs> Which again, I mean, we, we don't know anything at this point. We don't know who these people are. We don't know what's happening. They are trusting us to pick up the pieces as we go.
0: Yeah, that's true. And you know we're gonna we're gonna talk about this podcast as if you've seen all of the episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting on a rewatch if you try to put yourself in the mindset of somebody who doesn't know the show. How they give you little tidbits oh, along yeah. the way, and I'll, I'll mention those as we go. Things that kind of jumped. <clears throat> excuse me, jumped off the screen to me where I'm like, oh man, they're, they're giving you a breadcrumb here and there for a bigger reveal later. But we we start with, anyway, the, the White Walkers attack. Now, I'm going to forgive the show this, but the, these White Walkers look and act very different than the ones we see later. And I think part of it is CGI. I think part of it is how they develop the White Walker mythos in the show mm-hmm. over time. But these White Walkers, um, they don't have the full like sort of armor looking Uh, you know, kind of like armor that you've seen in uh, the the latest seasons. They still have blue eyes, but they can apparently run.
1: Yeah, It's an interesting difference of where it's kind of, the show clearly had a very different concept of how they wanted to present the White Walkers in season one than they eventually did in later seasons, of where they are night and day, where these look almost tribal in appearance. Night and day. They, they look like they look like you know kind of raiders going between the trees, like some native group north of the wall that's ambushing people. Whereas what they eventually ended up with were these kind of regal abominations that are very much separate and otherworldly and not a natural thing. What's interesting from my perspective is how that's both of those are kind of drawing elements for how the books describe the White Walkers. And one thing I did like here is the sounds they make of where. Later on in the show, the White Walkers are pretty much utterly silent, other than occasional screeching. Here, and this is very true to the books, the voices they make are the sound of ice cracking and sliding against each other. And it's really haunting to hear these kind of just cracking, uh, like two glaciers gliding and cracking against each other as they go past. It's just the words that come out of their mouths.
0: Hey, wait. Uh, so are you saying that when they actually produce the sounds they're making, they, they did it by recording ice
1: I have no idea if they did it actually but it is very much sounding like it's described in the book oh,
0: damn. I thought I thought you had a production spoiler for me uh, no no I mean g-
1: given that a sword being drawn from a scabbard is actually the sound of two spatulas rubbing against each other there's very little authentically done I'm sure from those sound effects
0: yeah and you know I'm the one that trolls watchers on the wall <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay so then the white walkers attack um, they kill two of the uh, of the three uh the the second one that was killed the white walker beheads him throws the head toward the third person and i i, I take this as a sort of i'm letting you go go back tell them what's coming
1: which is very much in keeping for to pick what the white walkers do the course of course the show is that they like symbols they like to use a certain degree of fear tactics which is it, it's fun i mean we see here the first the bloody artists that they love to be, in terms of how they've arranged the wildland corpses, and the, the fact that they are very much sending this guy back to spread fear, it again belies an intelligence and a planning attached to them, which I think in some ways they kind of abandoned as time went on when they kind of just turned the uh, White Walkers into um, a forgotten and lost abomination of the children of the forest.
0: Yeah, well, I, a couple things. One is I draw the parallel to Hardhome mm-hmm. because he stares down the guy basically saying, Leave run tailed at right like (laughs) let them know and that's kind of what he does the the job i got with yeah with with the night king and john at the end of the hard home episode i do kind of like the switch from the running uh white walkers to the ones that kind of walk casually just because i'm like a horror movie fan Mm -hmm. and i I love the villain that that just kind of walks slowly because it builds tension you know during these battle scenes
1: but he's so utterly confident he doesn't need to run the world the world is the world is his it will go at his own pace
0: All right, so then we cut, and then, boom, you are hit with the opening sequence. And I remember the first time I watched this, my roommate, Josh, shout out Josh, he told me, like, Terry, I don't know what you're doing on Sunday at 9 o'clock, but you have to be in your recliner, and we're watching the show. And I'm like, what is it about? He says, fantasy books. And I was like, you are a nerd. (laughs) And I said, "I I will do this with you. But when that opening sequence hit, I turned to him. Like a kid in a candy store. I was like, "This is amazing." Yeah. And we have talked about the opening sequence at great length. I think it's one of the primary strengths of the show. I loved it, and I liked that there was a cold opening first because that made the opening sequence and the song much more impactful.
1: All right, and there's so many features of the cold opening that I love. Like you talk from a horror standpoint. I mean, this just the sound of when that one night's watchman is ambushed and killed, and then the one that sep- the one ranger that's separate from the others turns and he just hears the scream, he sees the horses flee, and he turns. To see a little girl standing alone in the forest who just turns slowly back to him with blue crystal eyes. Every, it's, so, it's, so, it's such a wonderfully haunting opening to a show we know nothing about at this point, but we are already hooked. And when the triumphal music comes yeah, up with then, the opening, we are just sold for as long as they want to sell it to us.
0: Yeah, and it does a lot of things. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing song um it's it's a beautiful sequence but it also gives you a sense of the map and that was really really important for this show as you read the books every one of the books has the map in it because you need to know where these areas are um how people get around the 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 geographic strengths weaknesses of each region because those kind of inform how the people who govern those lands live live uh, live their lives Mm -hmm. so really great opening sequence uh Anything else you want to say about that?
1: Yeah, no, I fully much agree. Having a sense of the world really helps you understand how things work and the limitations on it. When we hear Rotford takes a month to go north, when we've got this map, we can see how damn far apart King's Landing and Winterfell are. And so it it really helps it make it much more real experience.
0: I'd also point out that the very first episode of this series is written by the showrunners, D&D. So, appropriate. So then we cut to, the sequence is over, and we are in the north, and we see uh, Stark men uh, who are riding down the one ranger who the White Walkers let get away. Question for you, Spencer, how did that one ranger get past the wall?
1: I mean, it's made pretty clear over the course of the books and even the show that it, the wall's not really designed to prevent anything from getting around. I mean, we see in this episode, a freaking direwolf gets around somehow. The wall only stretches across the land part of the north. You could arguably get in a boat and sail around the wall, and there aren't as many night watchmen on ships to stop you as there used to be. And an a single individual can climb the wall. There's only three castles that are manned. So, a determined individual or in this case a terrified individual can get across the wall pretty effectively without being noticed. It's wall mostly designed to prevent an I army would from take getting past. with that.
0: You take issue I with that. i would take issue with that. I mean, he doesn't have the, well he doesn't have the supplies to you know go over to east watch i mean that's a that's a pretty long hike mm-hmm. i mean he uh, he doesn't i mean they were ranging you know just north of castle black uh i don't think he probably has enough food i'm not sure he's on horseback at this point because when we see him later he's walking
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, i don't think he has the supplies to scale the wall and he certainly couldn't have gone through castle black and then left again uh, because they would have they would have you know, held him there or executed him.
1: I don't don't deny it was a hell of a journey. The books make clear that there was a large transition in time between when they left the wall and they run into these wildland groups to the point that they even stopped at Craster's keep. They're that far north. So his journey back to the wall and over it is the greatest story never told in terms of how the hell he did that. But practically speaking, there are many ways and we see many times that an individual, if they are really determined and have some way the means, can get across the wall without being seen. Though apparently some note of him was made either by Stark, out, by Stark Outriders or the watch itself, because they were clearly looking for him.
0: <laughs> All right, everybody who's listening out there, this is the first example of how Spencer will apologize for plot holes in season one and attack plot holes in season seven. This is the first example.
1: It's not a plot hole. It's just not it, a plot hole is when something needs to be explained. This is a guy made it over the wall. We know that happens. We don't necessarily need every detail of that put in.
0: It's it a bit unrealistic to think that he could have made it past the wall and then down, you know, near Stark Lands uh, past the gift. How about uh, this? With, with no horse, no I'm- food. How about this? We know
1: for a fact that there are doors in the wall that only open for night watchmen because we saw a salmon gang go through them. This guy's a very experienced ranger from what we hear. Well, the books described him as a very experienced ranger. He's actually in the books it's the older one that survives rather than the younger one. But details. Perhaps he went actually he actually went through one of those old doors like at the um, the night fort.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Well, <laughs> work with Spencer me here like season 1. <laughs> uh so yeah they they um they, they come upon him and then we cut to the winterfell courtyard and bran is learning archery and ed and catelyn are watching mm-hmm. uh we cut to sansa stitching and aria stitching and she is not liking it uh this is going to be i'm going I'm to bring this up multiple times in this episode spencer um hot take get ready i like Maisie williams acting much more when she was genuinely a child than later she I, just seems mm-hmm. to be just, just, it looks so natural, her mischievous nature and how she's sort of like irritated with things. It's so believable. And in later seasons, and it probably is just because of the scenes they put her in and what they, how they developed the character mm-hmm. very much seems like she's acting there. I, I don't get the same sort of sense of, wow, this is just. This is very, very natural what this person is doing. But when she's sitting there banging that needle into that, <laughs> into that thing that she's supposed to be stitching, right. she really looks like a little kid who just doesn't want to be there. Uh,
1: looking forlornly out the window, listening to the archery outside, and that little graceful smile and bow that she does in the next scene when she shows up, Bran. It, it's very, it, I agree, it is very natural. There's no point where I think, okay, well, that's just, you know, an actor trying to go through the lines. This is just, this is Arya Stark embodied, having fun.
0: Yeah, incredible. Well, then, yeah, and you, you foreshadowed it. Uh, we cut back to the courtyard, and Bran misses. All the older guys, John, uh, Theon, and i uh, all get a laugh out of it. To which uh, Eddard Stark, uh, your favorite Game of Thrones character, Very much so. uh, shuts him down by saying, and which one of you were a mocksman at 10? Which is a fair point. Uh, he goes back, he cocks back, and sh- uh, he's going to take another shot. And before he can let go, an arrow... Flies by, hits the bullseye. We look back. Arya's there, big grin on her face. She gives a little bow, and Bran, clearly irritated that his sister showed him up, goes to chase her.
1: <laughs> I, I love. What uh, you want
0: to say about this scene?
1: I love the scene so it's just within like a minute and a half scene, we've already really effectively summed up the relationship between everybody of the just cl- the, how close the Starks are, how loving Ned and Catelyn are, and I love even just how much they tease us at the idea that Jon Snow's a bastard before ever saying it. For the first line that John has is when he looks under Brandon and says, go on, father's watching. Dot, 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 dot. And your mother. I like how long yeah, they uh, actually take a us point. to tell us that he's a bastard because he's, uh, it's clearly something he doesn't want to say every time out there.
0: Yeah, shout out to you for noticing that. Actually, I've probably watched this episode an amount of, an embarrassing amount of times. I don't think I ever really caught that distinction in how John talks about uh, Ned and, and Catelyn. So uh, kudos to you. Point for you, Spencer.
1: Well, several moments over the course of this. I mean, it, it takes about 70% of the episode before they finally say that Jon Snow is a bastard of Ned. But before that, we have so many scenes that just show the relationship and tension that he has between Catelyn and the relationship he has with his half-siblings. So I, I, lo- I right. love how much the show is willing to trust us to eventually put together the details.
0: Yeah, and then Roderick Cassell, who is um, Ned's sort of right-hand man, who is also rocking one of the strangest beards I've ever seen. Spencer, More button chops. Before the show, have you ever seen mutton chops quite that pronounced on an actual human being?
1: No, but it is. Pr- he is so proud of those things. I mean, he has braided them. I'm guessing those have taken years to grow. And he's rightfully proud of what he's accomplished with that facial hair.
0: All I could think about is like if the Dothraki invaded the North. And somebody beat him, they would cut that off. And <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's his braid right there. I agree.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so Roger Cassell informs Ned and Caitlin that they found a deserter. Ned kind of looks down. He looks up. He's very somber. Uh, and he knows he's got to kill him. That's the law. And he asks Bran to come. He says, tell Bran he's coming this time, which Caitlin immediately objects to because he's too young. He's only 10. And uh, Ned responds. He won't be a boy forever. And winter is coming
2: yeah uh,
0: Spencer, uh, is ten too early to watch a beheading?
1: In this world, apparently not, at least in the north. Uh, I, uh, we've seen many times over the courses that Ned is very much a caring and loving father, but he will treat them as harshly as he believes they need to grow up to be. That he is going to weather these children so they survive everything the North can bring and bear them. But I love how pained he is about this. When Roger Kinsell comes up and tells Ned about the captured desider, you can see just the warring forces inside Ned at play as, you know, a caring man versus the honor and duty that's expected of him just are constantly at battle.
0: He certainly isn't somebody who takes any joy in killing someone, that's for no. sure. And they, they show you that right away. Uh, so we, uh, before Oops. we leave the, the courtyard there in Winterfell, we look up and Caitlin. Catelyn is looking down, um, with real hate in her heart for John. Oh, I mean, real hate! <laughs> this actress is amazing. It, when she shoots, looks—it's she's almost up there with like Lena Headley. Yeah. How Cersei will shoot you a look, and you're like, oh god. Like the, the actress who plays Catelyn can do the same thing, and she does that to John. John clearly looks uncomfortable. He looks down. He's putting the arrows away, and then we cut scene.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I know. Th- I like that he's when he's doing this, he they've clearly this clearly been going on long enough he knows to look up to know that she's there there's no doubt in his mind when he looks up that she's going to be staring down at him at hate and he's not surprised he's not shocked he just kind of looks down and goes about his day because that's just the relationship they
2: have
0: he does cringe a little bit but you're right I, it doesn't look like he's surprised by the look that he's giving so we come back to uh it looks like very close to where the White, uh, the the Night's Watch deserter was caught by the Stark men. Uh, Eddard's there. Uh, I think we have Rob, Jon, Fionn, and Bran. Mm-hmm. And they they take the deserter. Uh, they start to walk him up to the the block where he's going to be beheaded, and he's babbling about the White Walkers. I've seen him. I've seen him. I've seen the White Walkers. I've seen him. And Ned looks a little kind of shaken by this. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's no. It, this is not going to stop him. From executing the guy. He's still deserted. Law is so, law. It, law is law, my lady. And he uh he, he sentenced him to die and he puts him down on the block. Now there's an interesting point here where, and I didn't I wouldn't have caught this if I didn't watch it with the uh, subtitles on. But the deserter, when they put him down over the block and his neck is outstretched, he says very quietly, forgive me, Lord. Mm-hmm. Spencer, question to you. Who is he talking to? <sighs>
1: That's an interesting point, because there isn't like there's a lord in any particular religious belief.
0: Right. Huh. So was he talking to Ned? He might have been. That's a fun thought.
1: I mean, it's it, it's interesting when we see the three knights Watchmen that you already can, They the show does a good job in terms of setting out accents that are actually associated with regions. So it's pretty strongly suggested that both the knights Watchmen are Northerners. Both of the uh, veteran ones are Northerners, whereas the received pronunciation lord that's leading them is not um so that's an interesting point i never really caught the fact that there is no lord he's not he's not like he's a follower of the red god huh he may have been apologizing i never thought about that good catch
0: ah one to one and uh then we cut over to john he's there with bran and john all from jump street you see how like he's just a He's a caring, compassionate person who, who tries to help people through difficult situations. And right here, he's doing it with Bran. He's, he's right next to Bran. And he says, don't look away. Father will know if you do. Boom. The sword goes down. Ice goes down. Uh, Eddard's uh, sword, the Stark family sword, Ice, which is Valerian steel, cuts the guy's head off. And John looks over and says, you did well. Then we see Ned. First thing he does, which appropriate because this is the first time Bran it was in this situation he you know she's a sword and he walks over to brand and he explains to him why he had to do it he says do you know why i did it he says, well he said he broke the law no do you know why i had to do it mm-hmm. he says, the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword potential line of the episode spencer
1: very very close if not
0: and the only other thing i'll point out about this scene is that i think this was was shot in ireland and it's just beautiful oh, shots of the countryside
1: i hoped you were going to mention that this filming location i mean the film locations over the course of the first season of the show in general are always incredible but this is just such a wonderful start to it it's so perfect northern remote the mist the ring of stones the guards and silent watch formation it's such a beautifully filmed scene that just it's over in like 45 seconds but it's so well done
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's part of the joy of this season because you're getting into the characters, right? So the plot itself, you're not really completely connected to. Um, So when you have that situation, you're trying to piece it together, you need some level of action or mystery or aesthetic. And they really provide the aesthetic. And I know they were doing it on a limited budget. So kudos to D&D, kudos to the Game of Thrones folks. Did a great job.
1: I fully agree. Aesthetic is the perfect word for it. And what what I find remarkable about it as well is that most of this first episode was not what they originally filmed, that originally they'd filmed a pilot that was panned, that everyone they showed to it said, you need to refilm all of it. And they essentially pretty quickly refilmed like 90 percent of the scenes that we see for this first episode. And it can still put together perfectly.
0: Yeah, that's that's one of the things like um, like, the you know, the Wu-Tang album that the farmer bro, bro bought for like one million dollars. You hear I'm, about that?
1: I'm going to nod. Go on.
0: <laughs> so the Wu-Tang Clan, shout out Wu-Tang Clan, um, they recorded an album. They put it on one CD. They destroyed every other copy and they sold it for $1 million to that Martin Shkreli or whatever the hell his name is, the farmer bro. I don't know where it is now, but like in hip hop lore, it's like, that's like, that's <laughs> like the Ark of the Covenant. I'm like <laughs> in this, this pilot episode that they had to scrap and, and refilm, like you say, 90% of it. I really, really want to see it.
1: It's supposed to be like Star Wars Holiday Special bad, man. I mean, it's bad enough that I, I think I remember Kit Harrington one time saying that whenever he was acting up on set, the uh, producing directors would threaten to release that just to destroy his career.
0: I don't know. I mean, they cast the Mad King, so I would like to see it. But anyway, back to the episode. Uh, Ned and company come upon what looks like a gourd staff. Uh, um, Stag. Like a, like a big... Uh, Stag, sorry. A, a gourd stag. Uh, and it's pretty brutal. Um, Spencer, foreshadowing much? Uh,
1: the, <laughs> the fact that you've got a stag and a direwolf that are dead by each other's hands, I don't think it's in any way relevant that those also happen to be the sigils of two of the most important families in Westeros that also happen to be best friends, and also who, in this case, both of their leaders will be dead before the end of the season. No, no. Nah. I mean, how could that in any way be in any way vaguely foreshadowing or symbolic?
0: So one of the things I love about the books, the story, the show is this connection to the sigils, to the animals that are on those sigils or the items that are on those sigils and the people yeah. uh, who, who are in those homes or houses. I think that's just a really cool interplay. They, they do it right from Jump Street in episode one. You see a gourd stag nearby. They see a dire wolf. Clearly, the direwolf and the stag had been fighting. They both ended up dying. If it's foreshadowing, it's a little weird that the direwolf and the stag were fighting, because that—that's not really what happens. Spencer, you have thoughts on that?
1: It's not literally what happens, but there could be a certain symbolic element in terms of Robert is the one that brings Ned south. Um, so there definitely could be an element of that, and there also could be an element depending on how much you want to associate Stannis and his unwillingness to um, broker an alliance with the Starks. Is it? there's ways that you can there's ways that you can make it work but it's not I don't think it's meant to be interpreted strictly literally in terms of what we say
0: well <laughs> one of the things that just is low key funny to me about this scene is that when they see the direwolf theon calls it a freak now theon that's the most tone deaf comment <laughs> you could have made there it's the it's the sigil uh-huh. of the house that you are with it's a direwolf, wolf. And you look at the direwolf wolf and go, Oh, it's a freak. What the hell are you doing? Theon just shut up.
1: Theon exists to be rather tone deaf. It's kind of what he does.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you, I mean the first, maybe what, one, two episodes, um, we get, uh, <laughs> or not episodes, sorry, seasons. We get this like asshole of a character who's tone deaf, who mm-hmm. is way too self-confident, self-confidence off the chart. Um, you know, he's whoring around, he's mistreating women and that's what makes his redemption arc or was his, his fall I and mean, then his redemption arc uh, so great. And I actually really am invested in the Theon uh, storyline. I know a lot of folks aren't, but anyway, good point, Spencer, that that's very on brand for him at this point. Uh, Ned makes the comment or it's either Ned or one of his, uh, his, his, his soldiers there says direwolves haven't been south of the wall, you know, in a long time and they look in their pups and you know, they start, <laughs> I don't, I can't I'm, Who was it that was handing out the pups? Was it Jon?
1: I think it was Jon that was starting to hand them out, yeah. Yeah,
0: because he gave one to Bran, I know. Mm -hmm. And uh, Theon's like, uh, Lord Stark is like, um, Art is like, hey, we need to give him a clean death, right? They Mm -hmm. don't belong down here. And Theon is very quick to do it, which Rob (laughs) goes, you know, put your sword away. And he goes, I don't take orders from you, take orders from your father. Well, then Jon steps in, goes, Lord Stark. Five pups, one for each of the stock children. Die wolf is sigil of your house. You are meant to have them. Selfless move here, John. What he's doing is he's, he's saying five, right? Sansa, Arya, Rob, Rickon, Bran. That mm-hmm. doesn't include John. Yeah. Put himself out of it so that the five aligned with the five. And then Ned goes, okay, but you will take care of them yourself. You will train them yourself. And Bran is immediately happy. And the pups start getting handed out. Mm hmm. At that point, Brian looks at John and goes, well, you don't get one. And he says, I'm not a stalk. And I'd like to point out, damn right, you're a Targaryen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> not that he knows for the next through the present day, but, you know, that, that'll
0: come. You're a Targ. And then it pays off because then they see a runt and it's ghost. And I like how Theon thinks that John getting ghost is somehow embarrassing. He's like, "Has to run to the litter. That's jealous. John's like, hell, I get one. That's pretty cool. Also, <laughs> if Ghost was the runt, how damn big do these things get? Uh, damn.
1: And, enough that, you know, Rickon and Bran could ride them into battle throughout most of their youth. I mean, these things get horse size.
0: Jesus. All right. Anyway, anything, anything more you want to say about that scene? Yeah, I, I love
1: how much Theon is a dick because we don't know who he is at this point we're just we're kind of looking at the scene going why is one guard why is guard number three being such an asshole why is guard number three making fun of the fact that he only gets to carry the pups home he doesn't get one and it's only until i don't we don't even think find out in this episode who the hell this asshole is but i like how they're already introducing his character before we even meet him before we even truly know who he is
0: yeah fair point anyway we cut to king's landing and um someone is lying dead in state we know you know we watched the show and read the book, so we know it's John Aaron. I, small point here. I think they casted John Aaron really well. That's like the best <laughs> casting of like a dead person for one scene I've ever seen. That's exactly what I thought John Aaron looked like when I read the books.
1: Yeah, I'm down with that. Uh, now I'm just wondering: Is it an actual person? Did, did, did they? Is there actually an actor that they hired for the purpose of being a corpse for an hour?
0: Yes. Okay, I don't know have the name on me, but yes, it, it that, that that's.
1: Okay, makes sense to me.
0: I'm curious to know who that uh, perfect cast. Time... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, no, it, it was it was well casted. I mean, it just looked like him. Uh, small point, but it jumped off the page to me or jumped off the screen to me. But this is the first time we see the creepy stone eyes, um, which we don't really know what those are, but they are pretty creepy. And then we cut to, uh, I guess, basically like a uh, a sort of second floor that kind of overlooks where John Aaron is laying in state, and Jamie comes up to Cersei. Uh, and he, this is another one of those scenes, and we're going to talk about it through the, through this whole season where you don't know who, if you're watching it for the first time, you don't know who these people are. And you, as their dialogue continues, you start to pick up little things, right? Like Cersei at one point refers to the King as her husband, boom, that tells you, um, that she's the queen, uh, Jamie and Cersei start recounting a episode where when they were children, uh, Jamie did something kind of crazy he jumped off like a cliff or something in the water and Cersei and he was like there was no danger until you told father giving you an idea that these two are siblings so you get little nuggets it's just really good writing I know they took a lot of it from the books but I, I thought the scene was really well done uh, uh, Spencer before I get your uh, idea on that, before I get your point on that let me just go through kind of the substance of what they say please go ahead basically Cersei is sitting there Cersei's sitting there worrying that John Aaron told someone mm-hmm Guess, Jamie goes, who would he tell? My husband, the king. If he told the king, both of our heads would be skewing on the city gates right now. And th- 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 this is the interplay, right? Cersei's worrying. He's telling her, you're worrying for no reason. There's nothing to worry about. We don't know why she's worrying, what the secret is that John Aaron had. Um, but they do say that, well, Robert's going to have to choose a new king. Cersei says, you should be handed the king. Jamie's like, that's not a job I want. Their days are too long. Their lives are too short. Uh, And (laughs) Jamie gives this, which probably not going to be line of the episode, but very good. uh, Very good. Um, uh, 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 Sorry, a very good uh, line. Robert Mm will choose a new hand of the king. Someone has to do his job for him. He's all fucking boars and hunting whores. Or is it the other way around? (laughs) Funny guy. All right, Spencer, covered a lot there. What are your thoughts?
1: I I agree. I mean, it's like, probably if you look at this script, it's made like 12 lines of dialogue, but we find out so much, so effortlessly, and it just feels like a natural conversation where we're just tuning in and like we're taking notes to try to find out and piece together what's going on, but we find out about their family, we find out about the political situation, we find out about the royal family, we find out about a possible conspiracy, and just a natural conversation of two characters overlooking something, and it feels in no way forced. It's a great way of again, trusting your audience that the more... That, Keep with us, you'll put together little bits and the full world will open before you.
0: Yeah, and it does establish that they have a secret. Uh, We don't know what that secret is, you don't really get much of a hint as to what it is, but the two of them, who are clearly siblings, they have a secret. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then we cut to Winterfell, uh, and a raven lands uh, with a little scroll on um, uh, on its leg, and Catelyn is now doing the sort of I have something to say, I'm upset power walk through the Winterfell Courtyard, and she gets to Ned, and Catelyn explains that John Aaron is dead. And she dropped this one I know he was like a father to you, which is true. Uh, yeah. John Aaron uh, was, you know, Ned and, and King Bobby B., Robert Baratheon, rewards to John Aaron. They, they thought very highly of the man. That comes up later again in the episode. Ned immediately asks about Cat's sister and son. This is yet another clue of the relationships uh, present in this world. John Aaron was apparently married to Catelyn's sister, and they had a child uh and then catelyn explains the raven brought more news the king rides for winterfell with the queen and all the rest of them And she mm. says that was like disdain right off the bed. you could tell she's not super excited about this visit uh and ned explains well if he's riding this far north there's only the one thing he wants yeah so you can always say no so right away they know and, and, and it's great how the show structured this right because you just had a, a, a scene where the characters were saying he needs a new hand and then you have a scene going oh the right, king's dude. coming to me there's only one reason he could do it yeah. right so right there we're meant to believe that the king wants ned to be his hand yeah any thoughts on this scene
1: well just a couple one i honestly forgot what winterfell looked like when it wasn't covered in snow my god is it beautiful it's colorful it's verdant it's when, we, when she walks into the godswood and he's there before that black pool with the weirwood tree behind him, it's out of a damn painting of how pretty that is. We spend most of the rest of the show just seeing Winterfell in increasing stages of winter. Before that, it is a lively, living and happening place to be. Um, other comment? Yeah,
0: and that jives with the books. Where right. it, you know, that jives, sorry, I was just going to point out that jives with the books because Winterfell is kind of, I mean, this, the North only has one proper city, White Harbor. But, the, but Winterfell is kind of described as a, a mock city where yeah. people come, there's some commerce there. People come for in the winter or if they need something, etc. So that level of bustling and excitement and activity is appropriate.
1: And, and it also makes sense just from a, a um, environmental standpoint because Winterfell is actually built on natural hot springs. They used to actually put water up and through the walls to keep it surprisingly warm throughout the season. So even compared to the rest of the north, it is a bit of a verdant oasis in what is otherwise, you know, scotland northern highlands kind of terrain other point that i love is that i love how much in just a few, three little reactions we see we learn so much about the characters and how much <laughs> they interact with each other how they interact with each other of where when she clearly pained tells him that he's essentially lost what he viewed as his stepfather in some ways ned visibly deflates but then his first question is to ask about cat and cat and her nephew ask about cat's sister and nephew it just, again, shows how much of a caring person he is, that even with that horrible pain put upon him, his mind immediately goes to, what about them? Are they okay? And just checking with it whether they've been spared the same illness. And then when they bring up the ding! idea...
0: yet a, Yet another... Hold on, I'm going to ding every time you do it. Uh, you bragging on Ned Stark. Anyway,
1: I, You're going to get a lot. Um, and then when... Uh, <laughs> When they hear about the royal entourage, there are two reactions of where Ned practically shatters his jaw, he's grimacing so hard, and Kat sounds audibly tortured when she tells him, you can refuse. It, they both know exactly what's coming, and they're dreading it to the core of their being.
0: Yeah, and um, Catelyn, sorry, truth bomb here. He really kind of can't. I mean, this is his best <laughs> friend. It's his king. He can't say no to this. What do you think he can say no? What what happens if Ned says no here? It's not going to be good. Uh, so he's got to say yes. I mean, we all kind of know he's going to say yes. Uh, um, but Katrin, she, I feel like she was kind of reaching she at straws kn- there. She uh, knows it. it. She just hates to- it. Go, anyway, go yeah, sorry. She knows yeah. it too. It like she just. To- yeah, 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 She knows it, but she's she's just kind of like uh, anyway. She's just grasping at straws, like I said. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they all kind of know the inevitable here. Then we cut to the feast that's being prepared in the Winterfell Great Hall. Really, you know, the big slabs of beef and the apples and the and the wine. I mean, it, it just reminds me of those scenes uh, in the book where George really goes on for a page or two about <laughs> feast and food. And I know people <laughs> make fun of that. I get it. Everybody's like, yeah, George is fat, so therefore. I- whatever i love those i'm a a cook i I like to cook i have two of the game of thrones cookbooks that i cook out of i've cooked for you spencer during our game of thrones watch parties i love when he goes on and on about food so i like this
1: i agree it, it makes for a much more real and lived in world when think about what you do in an average day most of it involves a certain degree of eating it's a real part of the lives of their characters if you don't round out the food you haven't really completed rounding out the world and so George R. Martin takes a lot of effort, as you said. He's accurate enough in the description of the food that we can make freaking cookbooks off them.
0: Yeah, I love it. Anyway, and we cut to Catelyn. She's walking around, and she's kind of trying to figure out what Tyrion wants because they've gotten conflict conflicting information about Tyrion, which, by the way, both are true. Uh, your intel is is spot on, Starks. Is that he <laughs> needs a lot of candles in his room because he reads late into the night, and mm-hmm. he needs a lot of a lot of wine because he drinks a lot. Catelyn's like, how? How much can a man of that stature drink? And they're like, well, I guess we're going to find out because <laughs> he's coming. <laughs> and they left out the, the whoring part of Tyrion. Go ahead.
1: I said they left out the whoring part, but I suppose it might be a little bit uh, uncouth if they were to just provide him whores already by the time he arrives.
0: Yeah, that's not a conversation that's going to happen with Catelyn, right? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's not for her. But, I, you know, I do like that his reputation precedes him. Mm-hmm. All right, then we cut to Rob, Theon, and John, and they're all getting shaved. i like to point out something here, Spencer. Not an ounce of body fat between these three. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit.
1: <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, this is, an, this is an interesting thing from HBO is that HBO often gets a lot of negative rap, uh, rap for just, you know, wanton sexualization of women. The purpose of this scene is to have three very fit men stand around shirtless talking about being made pretty.
0: Yeah, I watched it and I remember being like, well, that one's short and that one has a big, like I'm doing the whole thing. I'm like, <laughs> trying to cut them down because of how <laughs> damn cut they look and how good they look. That's my first thing, by the way, Spencer, I don't know about you, but if you see like a really good looking guy, like I'm like, well, but his shoes suck. You know, I'm always talking of one thing.
1: <laughs> gotta knock him down at least an inch or two.
0: Yeah, but anyway, they're talking and it, it, there's not much to talk about here. They're just getting ready. Uh, The only thing that I guess matters is what they say is they make the comment that John really likes his hair. John's hair, it comes up a lot in books and uh, in the show, he's got big, long flowing black locks. Okay, great. Anything else you want to talk about here?
1: Uh, Nothing other than the fact that them, they, i they shaved John here and he shows up beardless in the next scene. I think it's probably the only time over the course of the entire show. We see John with that facial hair and he looks like he's about six. So I can see why they fixed that going forward.
0: yeah totally agree uh then we cut bran is at the top of a castle wall uh he sees a large garrison coming in we're meant to think that this is the king and all the rest of them as catelyn would say Mm -hmm. he climbs down the wall i'm i'm scared of heights i'm watching this i know it's a show i know that the kid's safe but my blood pressure is rising i can't imagine having a kid who's climbing like this and not just locking them in a basement somewhere so they don't do it again Mm -hmm. but he gets down and uh he tells catelyn yeah the king's here the king's here and she's like what did i tell you about climbing and he promised me you won't climb anymore and he's like oh i promise and she goes you know how i can tell you are lying when you're looking down at your feet <laughs> because he clearly <laughs> is going to again which is kind of an interesting like warm moment between yeah. catelyn and brian where catelyn's like i really want you to stop doing this but i know it's in your nature so i can't stop you from doing it you can draw the parallel over to ned and Arya where Arya shouldn't be engaging in these things that are really meant for men but ned knows this is who she is so i really i'm not going to be able to stop her
1: all right they're they're very they of all the families we see in westeros are probably the most supporting parents that we will see over the course of the series
0: yeah i i dinged you but i agree um and then the gates open everybody's lined up and here comes the king You see, like, men in, like, golden armor? What is that? And, oh. The king is coming in, my friend. <laughs> He's got
1: intro music, too, apparently. <laughs> uh.
0: That's right. King Bobby B is in the house.
1: <laughs> I do love
0: that. I love mar- the Baratheon theme.
1: I love that music yeah. as they march in. It, so- it sounds like the music that they would be playing as, the, as this royal procession is marching. It's a wonderful tune.
0: It also really, I think, encapsulates the Baratheon mythos, right? Yeah. I mean, he's a big, strong, powerful man. And it, that's just this hard, driving drum, marching music. That's why I wanted to play it. Because as he comes in... Now that I know the characters, I know the show, I love the music, it still gives me chills because it's so appropriate for what King Bobby B is. And so he comes in and you see a like a sort of red carriage, kind of, with the Lannister sigil on it. And then the king comes in. It's very clear he's the king because everybody drops down to a knee when he gets there. My question for you, Spencer, is the only people there who will have ever seen the king is probably Ned, maybe Cat. How do they know he's the king?
1: Uh, to quote Monty Python, they just have shit on him. You know, he, he kind of has a bit of a royal <laughs> bearing attached to him. Um, he is the one that's riding in. He, he, the servants immediately emerge upon him. And I think to a certain degree, everyone's probably looking to Ned and Kat to decide what to do here. Um, but it's true. It's a key thing that they, will, they, they kind of keep accurate over the course of the shows is that this is a pre-television or radio world. And most people don't have paintings or a printing press to see how people actually look. Most of the time, you wouldn't know what your king looks like, other than the fact that he has the various hallmarks of royalty attached to him.
0: But, yeah, I think that probably the answer here is that, it, and I don't know if this is how they shot it in the show, but they should have if they didn't, is everyone's watching Ned. And when yeah. Ned kneels, they kneel. Yeah. And so Ned, don't recognize him. Ned gets down. Everybody gets down. King comes in and uh ned immediately notices that the king needs a step stool to get down from his horse mm-hmm. um which ned that seems to concern ned a bit um and um well even before that let's let's back up i'm gonna, I'm gonna back up a little bit mm-hmm. uh because i talked before about how i love maisie williams acting as like a legit young kid mm-hmm. and there's this hilarious sequence where she's walking around with this military helmet <laughs> <laughs> she looks so crazy.
2: Yeah,
0: and she's kind of bouncing around and smiling. She's so excited. She's floor. so excited. And Catelyn's like, "Where's Arya?" Arya comes up. Ned is like, well, "Where did you get that?" Like he's so blown away that she has this weird helmet on, and she, she's just kind of like, "Well, it's just part of the course for me. I was just trying to fit in." Anyway, they put her in line, and when everybody starts coming through, one of the first things she asks is, "Where's the imp?" Which I think is funny. Like again, Tyrion's uh, reputation precedes him to the point that this young girl is excited to just lay eyes on the imp
1: yeah two things i love about this scene too one thing i didn't notice uh, i hadn't noticed before is that um there are separate divisions of baratheon and lannister troops that precede the royal entourage and i like that they've already very much set up this is a feudal world of where robert still has his own independent troops and forces as does technically cersei because of their families the mere fact that they are royalty does not mean that the the King's Guard is now their only force and their families are independent of them to some degree. I also, just from a humor standpoint, like that when, you know, Ned takes her and what are you wearing that for? He grabs the helmet. He just very casually hands it to Roger Cassell, and Roger Cassell's just now holding the helmet throughout the rest of the scene. Is this, this is his job as the royal retainer now.
0: <laughs> no. Uh, Maisie Williams, like, jumping up on that trailer, trying to get, like, a a view of the, of the Royal consort as they come in. and It, it just, the whole thing is a really funny sequence. Mm-hmm. But anyway, King comes in, uh, Ned notices that he needs a, a, a ladder or step ladder to get off of his horse. King walks over looking very serious, looks down at Ned, uh, motions him to come up. Uh, Ned stands and King Bobby B goes, uh, well, Ned goes, you grace. And King Bobby B says, you've got fat. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of gives him a look like he looks down at his belly and gives him a skeptical look and we get that big roaring king yeah. bobby b laugh that mark addy does so oh, well yeah. it's absolutely what i envision just a big guttural laugh and he gives him a big hug and it's immediately clear very well acted between these two actors how close ned and the king are and you can only imagine that if you're one of the the stark loyalists who are there in the courtyard you're just blown away because the king clearly (laughs) loves Ned. Like, Ned is in. Uh, And I I just thought that was a... a, 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 I like how they handled that.
1: No, I agree with you that throughout most of this scene, everyone's just kind of looking at Ned to how to react. And I love how baffled everybody is in the room except for two people when they do this you've got fat scene and start hugging each other. Everyone else looks confused as shit as to what the hell is happening and why their king, king and their lord are hugging each other. Except for Catelyn, who just kind of looks like oh, these guys again. And then right behind her, Roger Cassell, the old retainer, is just beaming with a smile with the two friends come back to come back together. I, I do find it interesting about, as you said, most of the people have never met these two before, but the two that have are like, okay, they're back to being best buddies again in a heartbeat.
0: Yeah, it's it's a pretty cool scene, and then we cut to a very fussy-looking Cersei, getting out of the cabin that is adorned with the Lannister sigil. Uh, she, Lena Headley, just souped the nuts has been great in the series, but well, she it, she looks so mad. Oh yeah, she, she looks mad to even have to be stepping on their ground. She doesn't even want to have to touch the ground with her feet. She's so mad about being there. Her hair is just a little bit out of whack but man, she is in no way excited to be here.
1: Mm-hmm. And she walks up to the... Right. Yeah, she walks up to the Stark line, and Ned, Ned shows his respect, but with just the smallest amount of begrudging, like, okay, I've got to do this now, whereas Catelyn is just so obviously the more trained Southern actor and is just ready to honor her grace.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think Ned, you know, it's a Lannister, so uh, going to be hard for him, but he does do his part. hmm And then the king goes down the line. Now... Did you notice something about what happens when the king goes down the line?
1: Uh, what in particular are you going for?
0: Uh, who he touches.
1: Uh, so he ruffles Rickon's head at the start. Uh, he greets Rob. has never actually met him before. Uh, he kind of standoffishly asks Arya uh, who she is. And then he immediately bonds with Bran about, oh, show us your muscles, you'll be a soldier. Uh, He also hugs and kisses Cat. Yeah. That's that's what I remember. What am I I missing?
0: Well, you're not missing anything. uh, Except the through line here. And I I did not create this, so uh, Reddit, don't kill me if people actually ever listen to this. But everyone that King Bobby B touches dies. Everyone who does not touch (laughs) is still alive at the end of Season 7.
1: That is an interesting point. I don't know if that's intentional, just based on the fact that almost all of the Starks friggin' die. Um. Huh, I never picked up on that though. The, yeah, he doesn't actually touch Bran or Arya, but everybody else is everybody else goes the way goes the Sansa. wayside.
0: Hmm? Doesn't touch Sansa, doesn't touch Sansa or Jon. Well, of course Jon's not there. But yeah, Jon's not touch, there. does uh, Yeah, doesn't touch Sansa. True. Yeah. So um, yeah, I don't know. It's probably coincidence, but it's kind of neat. Yeah. Uh, and then King the King King Bobby B immediately says he wants to go to the crypts, um, which Cersei immediately protests because we've been riding for a month, which that tells you how long we've been riding, right? Like to your point about this is a long way away. Hmm. Now, could they have gotten there in more than a month? You're damn right they could have, but the king had to stop at about five, have a glass of wine or two, have a <laughs> feast. Uh, I don't know how quickly you could actually get there, but I'm sure it is faster than a month.
1: And I know they're riding the king's road, which is actually like one of the few paved highway kind of-ish things, but how much do you think that carriage weighs? If they ever, if they ever have to go off-road, I just imagine that thing sinking like eight feet in the mud instantaneously.
0: I'm sure they had many of those issues when they're riding with that large of a garrison. But anyway, um, Cersei protests, but the king brushes her off. This is the first instance we see of King Bobby B not giving a shit what Cersei says. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we get that uh, up until King Bobby B's demise. Uh, he, he doesn't listen to her. So he just goes. he just brushes her off and he goes to the crypts. And Ned follows. And so King Bobby B and Ned are walking through the crypts. And they're talking about John Arryn. Uh, and he, the king doesn't have much information other than to say he died quick whatever it was it cut right through him mm-hmm. they both say they love the man um the king has this great moment where he says he taught me what was what and then you know ned kind of looks at him <laughs> and he's like "Well, d- d- don't blame him that i didn't listen <laughs> it's pretty funny yeah
1: I, lo- I love the perspective of uh, it, but i love the perspective robert has um, on himself that he Rob- Robert would probably be the first one in any room to admit that he's a fundamentally flawed person. He just doesn't care. He's here to have fun.
0: Yeah, which he points out because he gets right to it. Um, he's been here, what, 10 minutes? And he already says, you know, I want you to be my hand. Uh, Ned bows and goes, you honor me, your grace. He said, I'm not trying to honor you. Trying to get you to run my kingdom while I eat, drink and hold myself to an early grave, which he, he does. So, <laughs> again, self-aware Bobby <laughs> B. He knows what's going on. Yeah. Um, and then it's clear that the reason he's there is because he has some legacy feelings or love or whatever for Ned's sister, uh, Lyanna Stark. And he references uh, that if Ned's sister had lived, they would be related. But it seems to him, you've got a daughter, I've got a son, let's join our houses finally. Mm-hmm. So that's the first indication that we get that either Arya, Sansa um, is going to probably be betrothed to Joffrey, who was the next in line. You can reasonably deduce it's not Arya. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> can, it's probably Joffrey and Sansa.
1: Can you imagine if they they'd put Arya forward to be married to Joffrey, how that would have played out? She'd have killed him. Yeah, straight up in the I've, middle of the throne I've room. No, Consequences
0: literally... be damned. That or when he's just like asleep, like, <laughs> like the first night they're together, you know, like Arya's like, oh, okay, I'm game. Let's go to bed. They do their thing, falls asleep. She stabs him in the neck. Like, there's no way that Joffrey's living through a uh, b- uh being betrothed to Arya. But anyway, it's Arya and Sansa, so they're already talking about uh, joining their houses. Anything else you want to talk about about the scene at the crypt?
1: No, I, 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 I like how much they were investing in terms of the uh, scenery of where, as the two of them are walking together through this vaulted uh, subterranean crypt, along each side of those little alcoves as they go is a tomb of a northern king. And they don't mention it. They don't talk about it. We just see it as they're going by, as we see these regal figures with swords at the ready uh, in eternal watch. So, again, I just like how much they, with their limited budget, still spent the time to make each of these uh, scenes very real and lived in
0: yeah I agree and you know we'll get to this scene in later episodes of season one but what jumped off the screen to me is when King Bobby B in later episodes is talking to Cersei and he admits that he can't remember what Lyanna looked like Mm -hmm. if you think about how he's acting in this scene through that lens it's particularly tragic all he knows is that he loved her he can't really remember anything else but he knows he loved her he has to go to the crypt he has to see her All right, we'll cut to (laughs) <laughs> Tyrion <laughs> who uh, interesting shot scene again Spencer I don't work blue but he's having a glass of wine and he seems to be enjoying himself mm-hmm. and then we figure out that the, we haven't seen the, the whole scene and he's he's getting himself pleasured in some way he backs up um, after that situation and he starts to go to bed and the worker <laughs> who I'm going to call the worker uh, is sharing gossip about the king coming to town and she says she uh has heard the queen has a brother called the imp and Tyrion goes i heard he hates that name then the worker starts to make it clear that she knows exactly who he is and they start to get to it Tyrion explains that the gods gave him one gift uh he didn't elaborate but he can infer uh and then in comes jamie which is interesting to see jamie in a brothel not really his uh his brand Mm -hmm. and he starts saying hey look the sarks are going to feast us at sundown Sister has said, You got to come here. And he's like, Look, I'm just getting started, bro. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to make a feast at sundown. I'm, I'm going to be here for a good eight, 10 hours. Jamie says, ah, I thought you might say that. And he, in comes a cavalcade of women, I guess, with the idea being, Make quick work of it, Tyrion. We need you. Uh, and Jamie and Tyrion share this sort of like knowing glance and smile. And it's the first of many indications that they get along really well. They have a, a love for each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And Jamie walks out and he says, I'll see you at sundown. And Tyrion yells, shut the door, or, close the door. Let's <laughs> close the door because he's going to go to work. Uh, this is the first time we Anything meet. you uh, say about the scene?
1: Yeah, it's the first time we meet. Uh, oh. oh, what's her name? It's Roz, right? Is that, is that the name of the. Uh... Well,
0: yep. What euphemism? Did... The, the, the initial worker.
1: I'm, I'm going to have a hard time if we keep on using euphemisms with respect to this. I'm getting lost. Used like eight in the course of a, a, a two sentence description of as to what is happening in that given scene. But uh, the professional <laughs> woman who is depicted uh, is Roz, who will be an interesting recurring character of the course of the show that the show very much just created. It, uh, it, it, it is interesting to see what they do with her as time goes on.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I thought it was a. Um... It's a nice introduction to Roz, but yeah, Roz is a great character. It also it also then shows we, how one,
1: one thing it also shows ahead. how down to earth Tyrion is as well. Is that Roz straight up mocks him and insults him, and if anything, it just endears Tyrion more to her, or endears her more to Tyrion.
0: Well, that she's actually, and we see this over and over again. She's actually really good at this. Oh yeah, of being with powerful men mm-hmm. and kind of needling them and joking with them in a way that they can expect, and it's always kind of soft. But yeah, she's a she's a consummate professional. It seems
1: she knows her trade. But you you're
0: saying, <laughs> and then we cut to completely different setting. Um, the, along the the bottom of the screen, it says it's Pintos across the Narrow Sea, and we see Danny. She's standing there, looking just hollow. And Viserys walks in um, with a gift from Illyrio, and it's a looks like some sort of dress or something. And he says, "Isn't he a gracious host?" And Viserys tells her not to slouch. <laughs> And he takes off her dress uh, and starts to admire her body like you do. Like if someone built you like a deck, you know, off the back of your house. I I, I think we walk out and you look at it and you're like, go
1: ahead. I think we skipped one scene here that uh, led into this. Didn't the scene with uh, Rob, Ned and Liana happen before this one?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, So back up. Um, In this, he... He basically so Robert is talking to Ned and he's saying she shouldn't be here in a place like this. It's so dark and cold. She should be out somewhere where the sun can shine, on a countryside, something like that. And Ned said, "Well, she's a Stark. She's my sister. She belongs here." And Rob, uh, Robert, puts a feather on the hand of the statue memorializing Lyanna Stark. Anything I missed?
1: Well, and just the last the reason I wanted you to go back is because the last line then tell, ties into the next scene of where Ned says, it's done, your grace. The Targaryens are gone. And Robert, with just full wrath, looks off and says, not all of them. And then it cuts to them, which then tells us, again, where we're going. Just the, every scene is just wonderfully set up to pace on to the next one. So we have a hint going in what's about to be depicted now.
0: I don't like you calling me out that I did not do that chronologically correct. Uh, <laughs> I'm to take a point away from you for being just being mean. It's been three anyway, weeks, man. You're out of practice. We understand. Uh, oh, oh, okay, all right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to cut all this out, so it doesn't matter. So we cut <laughs> to pentos across the narrow sea, mm-hmm. and as I mentioned, we see Danny uh, and her brother. And Dan- what kills me about this is how how Viserys is looking at her. And I, I, before you so rudely interrupted me, I was saying that. He looks at her like you would look at, like, if you built a deck or a house or, you know, just like an inanimate object. He's, like, looking around like, hmm, well built. Okay. Looks balanced. Like, it, it's so weird how he's looking at her. And then he actually touches her, um, you know, in the in the boob area. And I got to say that Game of Thrones, Late the first cause? episode. Uh, could, I
1: couldn't hear anything for about the last minute of you talking when you first said Pentos. Your microphone's cutting in and out. Uh,
0: Okay. Well, it's recording on my end, so it must be the Skype connection. Can you hear me?
1: Uh, yeah, I can hear you fine. If it was recording on your end, don't worry about it. Just keep going. Sorry, sorry for the pause.
0: Yeah. Oh, no worries. Um, your yours does that for me every once in a while. Okay. You'll get either scratchy or something. It's just the it's the Skype. I just want, I just want to make
1: sure that it was okay. still recording on your end, though. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, what What was the last thing you said, just so I can know what you were, know what you were saying?
0: Uh, I don't know. Um. Sorry to break your flow okay, there. I'm going to go in. That's all right. I'm going to go back in with. Um, so I just want to say: the Game of Thrones establishes early on that the brother-sister dynamic uh, in this world <laughs> is a bit fucked up. Because we're one episode in. <laughs> we're one episode in, and we have got brothers-sisters on either side of the world being crazy.
1: I mean, the looks and the leering and the groping. I mean,. He's looking at her as if she's a mix between a piece of merchandise and also the wife that would have been his under different circumstances. We are in a very weird and foreign world.
0: I didn't get that last part. I really thought he was looking at her like just like a like a piece of merchandise like it was is actually really kind of disturbing. I, I, I mean, she just sits there and takes it and doesn't even make eye contact with him.
1: That's the most disturbing thing about the scene is that she's gone through this so much and is so conditioned for this role that she's utterly impassive to her brother groping her. And I'm pretty sure I saw him bite his lip as he's looking at her.
0: Ugh. Anyway, we can agree that it's pretty gross. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the Sari says...
1: worth noting not necessarily gross for them though they are targaryens they probably would have been married to each other so we think it's gross for them it's a normal way to wake up in the morning
0: yeah fair point but i mean he's still treating her like livestock it's it's not loving i didn't think oh no no no. i agree Um, i agree uh, yeah and we and we get that very explicitly later um but in this scene he starts to walk away and he says when they write the history of my reigns sweet sister." were right that it began today sure
1: (laughs) i i would like those histories to begin with and on this morning king viserys groped his sister that could be the opening line i would be fine with that history book
0: and i'm going to tell you that how they portray viserys makes me like lose respect for illyrio like illyrio's been around this guy for a long time Mm -hmm. does he really think he's going to become king? Or be anything other than a complete disaster if he does. Like, why is Illyrio still hitching his 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 wagon to this guy?
1: You know, it's a it's a hail mary kind of thing. You know, it's not like he'll be a good king. It's not like he's a, has that great odds of succeeding. But if he does, I'll make bank. It's the it's the off chance of a of a hell of a payout in the end.
0: Yeah. But anyway, Danny's still in the room, and she uh, turns around and she starts to get into a bath, uh, and the handmaid comes in and yells, "It's too hot." Uh, but it clearly doesn't bother her again a little bit of foreshadowing about um how the show (laughs) views uh at least danny um with heat and fire and birdie Mm -hmm. um anything else you want to talk about in that scene
1: no, again, it's just a, the, the first episode is doing a masterful job in terms of introducing the characters, is that very rapidly we get a very complete portrait of the relationship between Viserys and Danny, And to call it dysfunctional and unhealthy would be an understatement. She is nothing more than chattel property for his whims. And she knows nothing, she, she has no perspective to know that that's wrong. She has no perspective to know that, she, that there could be more for her life than that.
0: Yeah, I know. But I'm with this guy for like 20 seconds or whatever it is. And I'm like, I I just can't believe that people are still like, why wouldn't you devise some way to get him out of the picture for Danny? I mean, and that ends up happening, of course. But I I I don't know, man. He just he comes off as so petulant and um, ignorant that I'm still surprised that Illyrio, who at least in the books anyway, Mm -hmm. um, comes off as a, a smart, knowledgeable, resourceful guy is still trying to push his claim.
1: Well, as we find out later, particularly in the books, Illyrio and also uh, uh, Varys, who the two of them are very close friends working closely with respect to all of this, don't and never really intended Viserys. They intended Viserys to get all the pieces into play so that they could bring out their other Targaryen. Not Danny either.
0: Ah, yes, which never comes up in the uh, the show. Yeah. Uh, Fagon, that's true. So then we cut to, um, we're out on the steps. Clearly they're expecting someone. Uh, it's Illyrio, Danny, and Viserys are waiting. And Viserys is irritated because whoever they're waiting for hasn't come. And Illyrio explains that the Dothraki are not known for their punctuality. And then we see uh, what well, looks to be about four or five uh, guys riding horses, you know, coming and approaching them. Here's something I'd like to point out to you, Spencer. Uh, The Dothraki, uh, they do not skip arm day, leg day, (laughs) squat day, (laughs) curl day, or any kind of day. All of the days are met because these guys, if you thought uh, Rob, John, and Theon um, were going to make me have to insult their shoes, the freaking Dothraki are, I mean... (laughs) These guys are huge and cut. Shout out to the casting department because that's what they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be these big, strong, savage warriors. But man, they are they are just physical specimens. They're complete units, Spencer.
1: Oh yeah, I, I, I try to go to the gym and I'll look at the various classes that they have available. I've yet to see a Dothraki workout regime, um, but I would be curious to see what, the, what that class would be like because it clearly produces results.
0: I would pay top dollar. For, to watch you in a dothraki training class. <laughs> wouldn't live through the
1: experience but it would be entertaining to see me die
0: listeners investment opportunity for you create a dothraki training <laughs> class <laughs> invite spencer i will pay you a lot of money if you can record it for me uh, but anyway they come up <laughs> and uh this, you know, they come up... Uh, before this, Viserys uh, makes a point that Danny's going to be this guy's queen. Uh, she walks out to meet what seems to be like the head of this four or five uh, person group. Uh, and he seems to have a long uh, braid. Or, uh, you know, his hair is long. And Illyrio explains that the Dothraki, whenever they lose in battle, uh, their hair gets cut. And Khal Drogo, who this, this man is, has never lost. And true to form, it is a very long braid mm-hmm. um, down to the down to his lower back. So we already were, were being told by the, the the writers of the show this guy's a badass. I yeah. Mean, not he don't is not only looking incredible, but he also is apparently a great warrior because he's never lost. And Danny walks up. She he looks at her. Um and <laughs> nothing nothing's being said. He just uh he just kind of nods. It's kind of like uh you know a that'll do pig you know situation (laughs) she'll work uh and then he takes off and that's it and and Viserys is like what what the hell he is you know is this all still in play like is he still going to work with us and illyrio explains if he if danny wasn't acceptable we would have known by now so the idea being that this everything is on track go ahead spencer
1: uh yeah my, my question with respect to that last line is he suggesting that not all of them would have walked out of here intact if Drogo had been dissatisfied? I mean, what is he fully meaning with his kind of knowing line that if Drogo hadn't liked her, we'd know? What do you think? How do you interpret that line?
0: I, I took it to mean he would have, like, spit... You know, and been, and said something like really derogatory on Dothraki. Like, sure. would have shown some. I didn't take it that they were going to kill everybody, but I mean, it's on the table with the Dothraki. Yeah,
1: I, I agree with your interpretation. I, I think he's just suggesting that there's no subtlety here. These aren't people that are going to hide their intents or hide their reactions to things. If they'd been dissatisfied, there would just been a stream of curse words and them riding out with two middle fingers in the air. It would have been clear. I, two just two other little small things. Uh, did you notice the Unsullied in the background?
0: I did. I did. Sub- yep. Yeah, very consistent. Substantially
1: changed. Well, it changed a bit in design, but very clearly still the shield, the spear and the spiked helmet. And we do know from the books that he would actually, that Delirio actually did hire and pay for Unsullied, which is interesting given that the city of Pentos is officially a free city that doesn't allow slavery, but you know, details. Um, also, I love wait, wait,
0: I'll make a point about that. One point, make a point about that. So that would tell you that when Danny is looking for an army, she already has some experience with the Unsullied. Good point. Right? Good so point. that's a background knowledge that I—that's a background knowledge that I think a lot of casual viewers don't know she has.
1: That, that's a good point to, to bring out. Uh, last thing, I love how Viserys is trying to—I don't—he's not really—he doesn't really give a damn about her opinion, but his sale pitch for she'll be uh, Drogo's queen is, oh yeah, he's a savage, he's a murderer, but don't worry, you're going to be his queen. Isn't that great? And she just walks up to him with this just combined look of detachment and horror as she's just approaching this guy. Of uh, all I know about him at this point is that he's killed a lot of people and is a savage murdering raper. Okay, this is my day and future.
0: yeah. and and uh, similar to Maisie Williams, I think Amelia Clark um, does a lot with a little here. Yeah, um, I, nobody's gonna going to accuse her of being like a Meryl Streep level actress that I don't mean to be disrespectful to her but I mean I, I think that's just what we know mm-hmm. but she crushes these early scenes now she's not having to do much but man that soulless look that she gives as she walks up to Caldrogo, Drogo spot on very much so
1: and uh I think we cut from right. we cut from there for to them staring across the sea together pondering what just happened
0: we do and this is uh again Illyrio seems hell-bent on v- uh, Viserys being king he drops this uh, vomit inducing line um, People drink secret toast to your health. They call out for their true king.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And Danny, finally, the first uh, indication we have that she is her own person says, I do not want to be Khal Drogo's queen. And that promptly goes nowhere because Ceres <laughs> turns around and looks at her and he drops this line, which is not going to be line of the episode at all. I'm going to nominate and it. Let his whole tribe. I would let his whole tribe fuck you, on forty thousand men and all their horses if that's what it would take. All right, point out, uh, back up perspective. So, Caldrogo's Drogo's Kalisar is forty thousand. We know that when Danny takes control of all the Kalasars later, it's a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. My question to you, Spencer. Are those other 60,000 just broken up in different Kalisars, or do we have a population increase during that period?
1: I believe they're broken up in other Kalisars. Okay. I mean, we know that uh, that Drogo represents the uh, largest of the various Kalisars; that he has the most substantial band, but we even see him over the course of the books fight other ones. When uh, they attack and later on take slaves from the uh, sheepmen, the people of L- Lalasar, When they come across one of the villages, they actually raid and fight off another khalasar that's already trying to attack it. So there's definitely a wider Dothraki world beyond simply what Drogo's horde is.
0: Yeah, but it's interesting to me that he would have 40,000. There'd be another 60,000 out there, but yet he has the largest one. There's got to be a lot of khalasars, right?
1: There could be. It also could be a bit of selective math in terms of how they're describing the numbers of where Viserys distinctly says 40,000 men. Presumably 40,000 warriors. I feel like a lot of the time when Dany's referring to her followers, she may be simply referring to 40,000 Dothraki. Or 100,000 Dothraki. That she may not have, they may not be consistent in terms of whether they're describing the all the various component members of the Dothraki horde versus just simply the Blood Riders. So that could be an element of that yeah, too. Yeah, and
0: we've, and we've had that argument before because when I've heard the description of Dany's army, I thought 100,000 people who could fight you heard a hundred thousand people in total, including women and children. So you probably only have fifty or sixty thousand. Um, if your interpretation is right, that it would make sense that Khal Drogo would have about forty thousand, and he would be by far the largest mm-hmm. uh, uh Anyway, uh, sorry to to, <laughs> <divert> <laughs> We're to bring uh, up the numbers, but I. Yeah, all right, and we can cut to Winterfell, and Sansa is with uh, Catelyn, and <laughs> Spencer, um, defend Sansa here. I can't.
1: Well, I, I can. I, I will try. I love that Catelyn is very much trying to both reassure her daughter and also avoid having her eye-rolling being caught within her daughter's line of vision. <laughs> Where she just straight up rolls her eyes as her daughter waxes about how much she wants to be a princess. Um, but here's the thing, though. Cat, it's kind of on you. <laughs> She's your daughter that you've conditioned as a southern lady for the purpose of this kind of marriage alliance. You've bred her. You've educated her. You've prepared her that this is her world. When she looks at you with doe eyes and says, it's all I ever wanted, I kind of want to pick up Sansa and shake her, but at the same time, it is everything she's ever wanted, because that's the only world she's
0: ever been offered. I... I... Please, please, you have to let me. It's the only thing I've ever wanted. Uh, I, I
1: know, I know. I, 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 Sansa's character growth over the course of the show is heartwarming just because she starts growing out of the little princess mindset that she's been raised to be. But you can sympathize to a certain degree. She has been raised for a specific purpose. This is the life of a noble lady. You are used to broker a marriage alliance to either solidify relations or expand your degree of influence. That's her role. That's her future. The fact that uh, Catelyn's uncomfortable with it is more to do with the fact that she just loves her family and wants to keep them at home more than what Sansa is meant to be.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I guess that's fair. I mean, she has been raised that way, but it, for her saying it's the only thing I've ever wanted, I highly doubt that. <laughs> it it, it I does. highly, highly doubt that. I mean, the, the
1: fact that Catelyn is rolling her eyes at the fact that the daughter is saying this kind of does suggest that even Sansa, for a much, as much as it is her role, is taking it way too far.
0: Yeah, agreed. I think we can move on. Pause. Don't pause your thing. I don't Uh, I got to piss. I'll be right back. Okay, enjoy. Okay, I'm back. Okay. Were you humming the Game of Thrones theme?
1: Uh, whistling, but yes.
0: Maybe we'll keep it in. Oh, please don't. <laughs> okay, moving on. In the Great Hall of Winterfell, the feast is underway, and King Bobby B is right in the middle. <laughs> Yo, fun. any party with Bobby B is lit. I'm so. I'm, I'm just fucking impressed in how he's handled himself here first of all nowhere near his queen Mm -hmm. second right in the middle of all the people Mm -hmm. he's slapping asses he's high-fiving he's telling jokes people seem to love him and you get a sense of why He's not a great king, but he's a loved king.
1: Oh, very much. This is Robert embodied. He, he, we, we hear many times that Robert's the kind of guy that can invite a collection of people that just tried to kill him a few hours before to dinner, and they will leave the best of friends. You can imagine him just being the life of every room and every party he is ever in. And I just love the fact that this entire scene is him just face in the middle of a random serving girl's tits while his queen is like 30 feet that way just staring daggers at hate. There's nothing that is not brazen about this man.
0: And we all had this friend in college, Oh, yeah. We had this friend who was the most charismatic person in the room everybody loved, probably a little bit irresponsible, and had either a very attractive girlfriend or somebody that they're interested in. And then you go to a bar and he just... Uh, anyone like <laughs> Bobby Bees doesn't seem to have standards here. He's just, yeah, yeah. Wh- who are you? Okay. Come it, sit on my lap. It, Let me tell you a story.
1: It, this scene kind of reminded me in some ways of like when we do new year's reunions. And since we're all have wives or girlfriends or children now, they all come too. And I just kind of imagine that it's like Catelyn and, uh, Cersei are like our respective wives or girlfriends, just watching the debauchery that is us. When we get back together for a few days, <laughs> all the old college friends back in the same room where they're just sitting on the corner going, Oh dear. Look at them go.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we're like, shot time, shot time but Yeah, like, minus the womanizing. That does not happen at our knees.
1: We are not that brazen. No, we don't have that element. Uh,
0: yeah, well, not brazen. I mean, it just doesn't happen. But uh, sure. We do uh, descend into previous behavior, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of interesting, but it, it's just hilarious. I don't know. The whole thing's hilarious. Oh, yeah. It really makes me laugh that he's doing it right in front of Cersei, and Cersei is just staring daggers at him. <laughs>
1: Oh, while uh, Catelyn's trying to maintain some degree of conversation next to her, as polite and, and well-schooled person that she is. And Cersei's just having none of it.
0: Right. And so then we cut to um, Uncle Benjamin rides in um, and Jon is hacking away at, uh, you know, he's doing some sword practice there. I think he's winning. And yeah, he's, <laughs> Benjen, I think, asks, is he dead yet? kind of funny line mm-hmm. and uh john goes up well, uncle Benjamin gives him a big hug and he goes why aren't you in the feast and john explains and this is really kind of sad he explains that cat thought that his presence might insult the royal family and Benjamin gives this knowing look um so you know that Benjamin understands the dynamic there and Benjamin, in an attempt to make him feel better says well you're always welcome at the wall we welcome everybody and then john like very eagerly is like take me with you father will father will let me if you ask and uh you know, Bingen here, I think what he's trying to do is say, you got a long time to be in the watch. How about you find yourself a woman or two first? I yeah. felt like that was the context of his comments, Spencer. It, it, was, it was interesting. He's
1: the one who actually broaches the idea of John joining the watch. But when then John immediately expressed a desire to do it, Bingen immediately backpedals. Of where I think in some ways he's, he's saying, you know, it's part of your future, but you are in no way mature enough and have the perspective enough to make this kind of lifetime decision yet. Go grow up a little, we'll talk in a couple years. And if he means that literally of, go become a man both literally and metaphorically, and then we'll talk, there's probably an element of that too.
0: Yeah, I, that's why I took Benjamin's original comments as trying to make him feel better. Like, yeah. hey, you're not the rest of your life is not going to be like this. You will be among people who accept you. Mm-hmm. But his timeline is a little different than what John wants.
1: Oh, yeah. you, there's it's it's, it's it's the perspective an adult has versus the perspective a kid has of where when an adult says, eh, "This is part of your future," he can mean in five or ten years, in a way that a kid goes, a kid immediately responds, "Okay, can we go tomorrow?"
0: Uh, and then Benjamin indicates that he has to go in and save uh, Ned from, I think he says the Lannisters, right?
1: He does. Yeah. He, he sa- I think it says that twice before. He knows his brother and he knows his brother's in hell. And so he's come to rescue him.
0: <laughs> that makes me so happy. So like all of the, the Stark people know they just don't like the Lannisters. And I can just see Benjamin getting to, like a, a raven at the wall. And it's like, the, the royal family is coming the whole royal family and he's like oh god I got to <laughs> like, like guys oh, hold down the ancestors. fort a minute this I gotta is... go rescue yeah. somebody <laughs> so the, uh, we cut to Benjen is inside and he's talking to Ned um, this is the last time that Ned and Benjen see each other right
1: oh yeah I hadn't thought about that that is actually the last time that they'd seen him uh, do you want to address the fact that Tyrion walks out first though
0: oh I hate you yes <laughs> Um, so Benjamin goes inside to see Nad and Tyrion approaches Jon he just kind of comes out of nowhere and uh, he's Tyrion is pre-gaming the feast <laughs> he's basically saying yeah I gotta I gotta have some wine before I can even go in there and be bothered yeah. with these people uh, Tyrion says that he wants the, the idea of the night's watch comes up and Tyrion says he wants to see the wall he's always wanted to see the wall and then Tyrion starts to piece together who Jon is and he calls him a bastard Jon does not like this he gets offended he says oh did I offend you my apologies. But you are a bastard. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, I'm I, sorry you didn't like that, but you are. And John still is not really engaging. And then Tyrion drops this line. Gonna give it a nomination for best line of the episode. Mm-hmm. Let me give you some advice, bastard. Never forget, never forget what you are. The rest of the world will not. Wear it like armor. And it can never be used to hurt you. What the hell do you know about being a bastard? All dwarfs are bastards in their father's eyes. <gasps>
1: It's a with great line that comes up in season seven, right? Oh yeah, it, it, it's a wonderful line so again, this is probably the first time we've been blatantly said that Jon is a bastard. Um, but it's just such a wonderful bonding moment between the two. We get real perspective on the. We've only seen Tyrion so far as is very happy-go-lucky, is very carefree, in who he chooses to cavort with and what he chooses to do with his time. But now we see the level of heart, the level of hurt that all that is probably just masking.
0: Right, and what John doesn't understand here, I don't think, or at least he probably doesn't appreciate as much as he does in later seasons, mm-hmm. is that Tyrion's telling the truth. Very Tyrion, much so. He's older, he's uh, he's more wise, but he has this a similar pain that he's felt his whole life because his family, in some way, has not accepted him.
1: Well, he, he's honestly trying to help John here, and John is not mature enough and doesn't isn't wise enough to fully get how much Tyrion is really trying to give him sound and good advice.
0: Yeah, and rewatching this, it makes that scene where um, Tyrion learns that Jon Snow has been named king in the North that much more hilarious. That like this is <laughs> this is when they yeah, this is when he first sees Jon, and then like seven years later, he's like, "Well, that guy's the king." He's like, "What? The, what? He's the king. <laughs> Jon Snow? That, that Stark's bastard? What? That,
1: that baby-faced powder that was whacking on that was whacking on a dummy while sitting out in the middle of the dark is now the ruler of the largest region of the Seven Kingdoms?" That's a fun transition.
0: <laughs> okay, anything else you want to talk about with this scene?
1: No, let's go on to Ned and Benjamin, like you were saying.
0: Well, um, yeah, and there's actually one scene right before that where, yet again, King Bobby B is being the wife of the party. This time he's got a woman up on his lap. He's got, He's touching her, her backside. He's kissing her. <laughs> uh, it's just hilarious to watch him in his element. It's clear that this is kind of how King Bobby B uh, kind of uh, com- comports himself right this is just how he is at a feast yeah my, and what's interesting to me is that no one thinks this is
1: weird. <laughs> yeah i mean it's he's the king he can do it you can do whatever the king wants but god my compliments to catelyn that she's able to ma- maintain any degree of composure she's just sitting next to cersei she can probably just feel the radiating anger and just like a physical way coming off the queen but it's just soldiering through the best she can God, that would be awkward to just watch that happen in front of you
0: oh my gosh yeah I, but it's interesting to me that the rest of the common people don't think huh? it's weird i mean i i would i'd be like what is it i mean and, and nobody seems and maybe this is just a testament to king bobby b's personality yeah. but no one seems you know sort of nervous about interacting with him huh? or withdrawn everybody's laughing gregarious drinking telling stories so yeah. King Bobby B, the life of the party.
1: It's such a fun transition as you said between when he first walked in and nobody knew him and everybody's just you kind know, of watching Ned and Catlin know what to do. They're all kind of bowing, they're all look really confused when Robert starts laughing and hugging him. We cut to like what? It's the same evening, right? There's not been much transition. And everybody's just like, "Okay, the life of the party's here. Let's have a time." It's again just the mastery that Robert is in terms of interacting with other people. As you said, he's not meant to be a king. He doesn't care enough about the process. But he's really good and really naturally capable at certain things. And one of those is just immediately making people feel comfortable around him when he wants you to feel comfortable around him.
0: Yeah. So uh, then we cut to the scene that I got to pretty much early earlier, which is where Ned and Benjamin are talking. Again, this is the last time that Ned and Benjamin talk that we know of. I hadn't thought about and, that. Uh, I hadn't it, thought about yeah, that.
1: Yeah, Ned, go ahead. No, sorry, I just hadn't thought about that. That's a good catch.
0: Yeah. Uh, which makes it, you know, I mean, on a rewatch, you know, you know that these two grew up together, loved each other and went through a really tough time during the lead up to and during Robert's Rebellion. So it's it's sad that this is the last time that they're talking. And Ned mentions, mentions to Benjen um, that the boy he executed was talking madness. He was talking about the White Walkers. Um, Benjen kind of dismisses this. Uh, he does not seem to at least from my interpretation of his comments he doesn't seem to believe that the white walkers are real or out there Mm -hmm. Uh, i think he says something along the lines of you know men see what they want to see right like they he probably saw something but he didn't see the white walkers Mm -hmm. and they both admit during their conversation in a sort of brotherly way like we're in weird times mention of the white walkers there's a dire wolf south of the wall Ned's about to become hand of the king. Like, WTF? What the hell's going on?
1: Yeah, and I love that their way of saying WTF is just sigh and say, "Winter is coming." Just every that, that's such a it's such a wonderfully loaded statement in the Stark lexicon of it just it's kind of just you can effectively end any sentence of just Jesus Christ, the world is weird.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm resisting the urge not to draw a parallel to our current times. Anyway, <laughs> we go to um this is where and you mentioned that they tried to make uh, cat tried to make small talk with cersei i think she did it a little bit in the previous scene but it's more pronounced in this scene. Uh, oh yeah um cat's starting to try to make small talk with cersei fails miserably um uh (laughs) they do say um you know uh, that they might end up being family members soon so clearly the word has spread that robert has proposed the marriage of sansa and joffrey to them they now know it and they acknowledge that they know it and uh cersei man mean girl compliment here just says well, she's such a beauty uh it's something along the lines of it's a shame to hide her here in the north forever yeah uh well catelyn lives in the north <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
1: uh, i i love cersei i love what the actress does with the character i love that even when she's trying to say nice things about you she'll immediately still put in something that just sounds sinister like sansa comes up meeting the queen for the first time. She's going to be a princess. This is every one of her dreams. And Cersei offers a few comments. Oh, she's so beautiful. Why do you hide her up here in the north? Which she say is a delightfully cutting line to Catelyn. And talks about, oh, that's such a lovely dress. You'll have to make me one. And it just slips there in the middle. Have you bled yet? Savage. A sense, just Savage looks... move. Mom, is, is this okay? Stranger danger? Do I answer this question?
0: <laughs> I think that's just... <coughs> excuse me. I think that's just a power move. Yeah. That's just Cersei saying... I'm the queen. You have to answer my question. I'm going to put you on your heels a little bit. I'm going to give the hezzy, mm-hmm. a little hezzy for you, make everybody uh, you know, a little uh, confused about where I'm coming from. Well, it, Kat has no choice but to say, go ahead and answer. And Sansa says, no, uh, she has not bled yet. And then she weeps. Yeah. Anything else about this scene?
1: No. I, 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 Every one of these scenes is so great. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm kind of returning to that point in my head of just how fun it is to even talk about them.
0: Yeah, and then we see a, um, a confrontation between Jamie and Ned. Now, if you've read the books or you know the canon, Jamie and Ned have a long history, um, mm-hmm. or at least a, a, a sordid history, mm-hmm. where when Jamie stabs Mad King in the back, when the Mad King orders his pyromancers to blow up all of King's Landing, Jamie actually sits on the throne. And Ned comes in uh, after they take King's Landing and sees him on the throne. And it, 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 it's a very hostile interaction between the two of them and it colors their interactions through the rest of the series uh and and you it's clear early on they have some sort of backstory or hostility because jamie's very like in his face Mm -hmm. won't let him pass and he says oh well if you become hand of king we'll have attorney uh interested to fight you ned (laughs) which uh i'm gonna go ahead and preemptively ding because i know what your comments are gonna be here uh says i don't fight attorneys uh when i fight a man for real i don't want him to know what i can do Spencer,
1: I, I, I enjoy this little brief pissing match of where Jamie's clearly trying to get a rise out of Ned and Ned throws that line in his face. And even Jamie just kind of double takes and just is honestly impressed and just says, well, well said. said."
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I liked it, too. Um, it's it's on brand for both characters. But I mean, early season Ned is, is a baller, man. It's not till he gets to King's Landing. The wheels start to fall off. Mm-hmm. It makes you wonder if Ned had stayed in the north and everything else played out, what would have happened? Because he, he had clearly control of the North um, and an and understanding of how to go about ruling that area very well. Uh, if, so I think the War of the Five, Five Kings would have turned out very different.
1: Oh, hell yeah. I mean, I have to ponder, if the if North had effectively stayed out of Southern politics, if Ned had not r- r- uh, ridden South, I'm feeling bad for the White Walkers trying to deal with a united North under Ned. That doesn't sound like a scenario the White Walkers make it through well.
0: I feel bad for uh, for the Lannisters. Oh, yeah. Are you not, are you,
1: well, I mean, we've seen before, that in terms of like Robert's Rebellion and everything else, a united North under competent leadership with a clear plan and a clear objective and a strategic sense of the whole field is not something you ever want to fight with a solid hope of victory, particularly if you ever try no. to actually root them out of their own terrain.
0: You never know what would have happened, but I do think that if renly had died stannis got the bulk of the legacy Baratheon forces the tyrells left and then ned joined the north to stannis i don't think there's any way that stannis loses uh, that assault on king's landing but anyway that's all conjecture but it would have been very different and my whole point here is just saying ned is in his element right now
1: oh yeah very much so ned is home we,
0: yeah yeah uh then we cut to it kind of pans out a little bit and you see Arya. Which every time she's on scene, uh, on the screen in this episode, I'm just laughing because she looks so mischievous. Oh, she looks yeah. like she's having a lot of fun and she fires like some mutton or stew or something at Sansa who's over there like, you know, gossiping with one of her, her friends. Mm-hmm. And it hits her right on the cheek and she looks like this is the worst thing in the world because Joffrey can see me. <laughs> and Rob, shout out Rob, is uh, is laughing. <laughs> And what I like about the fact that he's laughing is it seems to me that all of the older uh, start children, along with Theon and Jon, um, they they just get a kick out of Arya. Like, oh, It yeah. just makes them all laugh.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, on the other hand Sansa is just I love her, I love her little horrified banter in the background is just Arya is still so disruptively giddy Rob's laughing his ass off Catelyn is looking at Rob saying go fix this meanwhile we get this little running commentary in the background of Sansa going oh my god it was my dress it was the dress I made and now it's ruined it's just so she Sansa is so much of an outsider even in her own family even at this stage
0: yeah. And you have to wonder, is that, you know, nature nurture, right? I mean, you brought up before that some of this lies at the feet of Catelyn. She probably raised her to be a Southern lady, mm-hmm. but I also think it's some of Sienza's natural personality. Sure, uh, But that combination, you're right. She really is oil and water with the rest of them. And it's clear that the, the guys just really like Arya. They get a kick out of her. And when, to your point, Catelyn basically tells Rob, get Arya out of here he kind of begrudgingly does so mm-hmm. i also like that aria doesn't fight rob no no she just goes okay like you get i think she would have like if catelyn had come over there she'd be like no mom don't no but with rob she's like okay rob let's go he says it's time for bed." He leads her out insane yeah i agree then we get to a very very sweet moment mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, between ned and cat <clears throat> they're in their bed after the feast and they're talking and <laughs> just says, "How did he get so fat?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is such a loving scene of where the two of them are just. Ned absolutely does not want to leave his family. He absolutely does not want to leave the North, and Katlin's right on the same page. That she's literally joking about, "Come here, fat man! You are not taking my husband away from me." And as he said, <laughs> I, lo- "I love Ned's mute line," but they're laughing. They're holding each other. They're clearly deeply in love. And he just kind of looks off and looks confused for a second.
0: How did he get so fat? (laughs) (laughs) I know. But yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that uh, sort of banter with Catelyn. I'll tell him, listen here, fat man. You cannot take my husband or whatever the line was. It's pretty cute. But then you get a knock on the door and it's Maester Lewin. What I find interesting here is they're showing you the intimacy of the maesters with the families they serve. Very much so. Other than family, I don't think anybody else would actually presume to go into the chambers. Of the Lord of Winterfell, mm-hmm. <laughs> while his wife is in the bed with him, um, and deliver news. I mean, this is—you see immediately—this is clearly a very dedicated, and trusted servant of the family. It's a—it's a small way to work that in early very
1: on. Very much so. I, I find it interesting too that upon delivering the message, I think it's Ned immediately yeah. says, "Stay." Is that he's so trusted, he's so much their advisor that he wants them, he wants him in the room with them for whatever this is about to bring. So, yeah, I, right. I agree. That's a wonderfully set up for how much the Meisters and Ma- Meister Lewin in particular are very much part of the family and loyal to the family.
0: Absolutely. And it, he's given a scroll over. It seems to be sealed. I think this is the type of sealed that is not the various type of sealed, right? Like, <laughs> this is actually sealed. I don't think that Meister Lewin did any sort of sh- chicanery to nah, look at this nah, beforehand. Nah, nah. I agree. Uh, gives the note to Kat. Kat opens it. Uh, she sees that. It, well, before that, she sees the the, the sigil or the the uh, wax marker and says it was sent from the Eyrie. She reads it. She looks super concerned and burns it immediately. She says that the the note said that Lysis fled the capital and that Jon Arryn was murdered by the Lannisters. Mm-hmm and well mm, yeah okay let me let me continue a little bit and then we can get into it and then she says um you know basically like if anybody else had gotten that note other than us if it had gotten into the wrong hands lisa would be dead uh so that's why she burned it immediately she was very concerned but her point being is why would lisa risk sending a note like that which could get her killed if the raven just flew to the wrong place yeah if it wasn't true
1: well for one thing it was a it was a writer in the night right so she, uh, that's what Meister Lewis said, right? So it, it, even Spacey Lysa recognized that this is the kind of message I'm sending with a trusted retainer who uh, has instructions to die rather than give it away. She isn't trusting a bird a for this kind of thing.
0: Wait a second. It was a rider, not a raven?
1: I think, I think he said it was a rider in the night.
0: Interesting. All right, well, that would make more sense. Uh, and by the way, I, I'm done with you. I mean, you aren't friends anymore. You keep correcting me. <laughs> uh, but that would make a lot more sense because, yeah, you, you, would, you would want... It might, maybe not just one writer you may want multiple writers to carry a message uh, with
1: notably in the books she even takes additional steps to conceal it of where it's um, it's like it's, it's like a separate gift and there's even like a false bottom where the message is buried and there's, there's several other d- additional layers that are hiding the actual intent behind it because um, even Lysa who as we see over the course of this is only is more than moderately unstable appears to recognize that this is the kind of message that gets one killed if it gets in the wrong hands
0: Right. And, and then the conversation shifts, and I find this interesting because it also continues to show just how trusted and empowered uh, Maester Lewin is within the family because he immediately starts to lobby Ned to take the job. And, and his point being, you know, if this is true, you're the only person the king can trust. The king's in, in trouble here because you got the Lannisters who are running roughshod over the kingdom, uh, and he's still trying to rule. You know, he's your friend. He trusts you. You should take the job. And Kat is against it, uh, clearly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they kind of go back and forth, lobbying Ned, should he or should he not take the job? Caitlin uh, does reference uh, that when Ned's father and brother rode south. I didn't come back. Spencer, do you want to give a little bit of a background on that for folks who haven't read the book or know that backstory?
1: It's... This is tying back to the foundations of the uh, Roberts Rebellion of where... And the kidnapping of Liana that the show's already hinted at in terms of this, but... When Liana went missing at the hands of uh, Rhaegar Targaryen, um, Brandon f- was the first one who ro- rode south, which quickly grabbing all of his close friends among the northern families, the Riverland families, and also families that lived with the Vale, too, because he'd spent a lot of time fostering in those various um, other kingdoms. They basically ride straight to the gates of King's Landing, and um, Brandon, being who he was, essentially just m- knocks on the door and says, Hi, could you send Rhaegar up, please? I want to kill him. Uh, He literally yells out, come out and die, which never is going to go over that well. So he and all of his gang are promptly arrested, and a message is immediately sent to uh, Ned and and Brandon's father, uh, Rickard, to say, come now, answer for your son. He also sends messages out to the other other lords, too, with their respective uh, sons that went with uh, Brandon. So Rickard goes south, fully expecting that he's going to have to lobby for them, and if he needs to, Actually, do a trial by combat with one of the Kingsguard, which Rigard, being well regarded by everyone, is just kind of like, eh, I'll kill a Kingsguard tomorrow. It'll be fine. Uh,
0: they arrive. Hey, wait a second there. <clears throat> Isn't that a little bit of a plot hole, though? Because what about the Sword of the Morning?
1: Uh, yeah, I think he fully expected that he was going to fight the junior member of the Kingsguard. I think he was expecting to fight jamie But we've heard before that even from Aim on the Dragon Knight that. Um, the Stark, Stark lords, and I think maybe even Rickard—I think he might be that old—are uh, legendary in terms of their prowess. And as Ned said, since they don't go to tournaments, it's not always clear what they're capable of. Yes, if he was fighting—if if he was fighting the, the Sword of the Morning, that would have sucked. If he was fighting um, and Selmy, that would have sucked. It's more of an ace in the whole plan. But I think he fully believed that so long as he wasn't assigned to fight one of those two, he could have taken them. And even with them, we right, don't yeah. fully know
0: yeah i know but it's just like I, I just feel like when i was reading it i thought his confidence was a little bit like too much right because he could have named sir arthur dane but he didn't he named Go ahead.
1: Uh, instead he marches into the throne room uh answers for the charges and demands a trial by combat fully expecting to fight one of the uh, members of the kingsguard and unfortunately for him the mad king who has fully fallen into his madness by this point declares the champion of house targaryen fire and has him
0: bor- i call bullshit on that too
1: oh yeah uh, has him burned alive with wildfire in the throne room while he brings in Brandon to see his father beginning to cook, ties a, essentially a noose and torture device around his neck, puts a sword right in front of him, and offers him the chance to rescue his father if only he can reach the sword. And as all the various noble ladies of noble lords and ladies of King's Landing look on, they see Rickard cooked to death in his own armor and Brandon strangling himself, desperate to rescue his father. So it is a both with that incident and others attached to it, it is a persistent thing that Starks who come south don't reach good ends. There's exceptions, of course. We can talk about the Hour of the Wolf on a different podcast, but particularly in recent years, and particularly from Ned's perspective, all of his family that ever marched south died and didn't return. He's alone with his younger brother now, whereas everyone else who had ambitions and plans for the future in the southern kingdoms came to fought, came to foul ends.
0: Yeah, and I wanted you to go into that because I just wanted to point out how impactful that piece of evidence that that Catelyn is throwing out to Ned really is. Yeah. Because when she says that, it's not a throwaway. He he has he has a memory uh-huh. of his his father and brother being brutalized and murdered uh in a very public way so it, when she says that it, it weighs heavy on ned and the only response that maester Luwin can have is he says well a different time a different king yeah there's not wrong about that
1: he isn't and one scene that we saw before that shows how much ned's family meant to him uh is the fact that they are buried in the crypts normally as we saw previously it's stark kings it's stark lords Family members aren't buried down there, not in that annal of kings that are present. Ned, in many ways, violated tradition by burying his brother and his sister down there. Just how much they meant to him, that he wants them to be honored with all of the greats of the history of Winterfell, just because they were his world. And so much of Ned's character is driven by the trauma of what happened to his family some 20 years before.
0: Yeah, and I tend to think he set a new precedent because then Ned was buried there, right? You uh, well, think
1: that he was the lord of, the, they're, they're, he was the lord of Winterfell?
0: Right, well, but my point is, that I think that that's going to continue. Yeah. I, I would be I would be shocked if Sansa, Arya, and even potentially Jon uh, are not buried at, in the crypts of Winterfell. But that's just conjecture. What, uh, we can move on.
1: One 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 question before we do: What did you think of the filming of the scene of where it's literally framed of where Ned is in the foreground and over each shoulder are Catelyn and Meister Lohan
0: wait oh i think it just reinforces what's going on here as you, you know you've got they're just both lobbying him mm-hmm. um i don't think it's really a cat versus Mr. lewin right because i think Mr. lewin um is taking the uh the side that i think ned is predisposed to take no 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 um I- for the reasons we talked about earlier mm-hmm. but I, I agree that the filming does show that that he, he's just in this Uh, dilemma he's conflicted about what to do
2: no no,
1: i agree and i think uh, the reason that they framed it that way is that they framed it as if they were the classic consciences on your shoulder of where they're just representing the war that is already going on inside ned as they're offering their comments you can see ned almost shaking from the conflict that's in him right now there's the wars of love honor duty and common sense are just raging inside this man as he's trying to decide what he has to do and the fact that they've Physically, his consci- various aspects of his consciousness have physically manifested as his, his true, two most trusted advisors. This makes for a wonderful framing of the scene.
0: Yeah, you you read more into the subtlety of Sean Bean's acting than I do because mm-hmm. like, multiple times you've said, "Well, his jaw is almost his jaw is almost shattering because it's clenched so tight." And like, I didn't really get that, but in this scene, I, I could see he was uncomfortable, but yeah. it really wasn't much overt acting. But yeah, good okay. point. They were both they were both kind of there, and they were going back and forth about it. Um, but we cut after that line, a different time, a different king, back to Essos. And now we're at the wedding feast uh, <laughs> after the <laughs> wedding of Danny and Caldrogo. And this is a <laughs> very interesting scene. Uh, now we're starting to really get a lot of insight into to the Dothraki culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as we cut you have Danny and Khal Drogo they're up on what looks to be type of a stage and they're looking down at the Dothraki and this is their version of wedding party which is like people are just having sex and fighting everybody's half naked it's a whole mess <laughs> um, yeah go ahead. I
1: would have loved to have seen the stage directions for this scene if we, we just want to make this as foreign and as uncomfortable as humanly possible just go with it let's see what happens
0: yeah, and like all the women's breasts are out. Oh yeah, but they still have like a top, so it's like clearly meant to be the breast out. And you see some people having sex. Um, you do see one guy come up and give cow a box of snakes. <laughs> Not quite sure what that was about. We we all have uh, that one friend. Snakes.
1: That, we all have that one friend that just sucks at gift giving. You know, the guy who brings snakes.
0: <laughs> well, he seemed to like it. So i kind of wonder Like, well, I think it, I think they eat them.
1: Yeah, that, that would that's be my, my guess. guess.
0: Um, and then you see one guy, he's hooking up with a girl. Uh, another guy breaks it up, and then they start fighting. And Cal, gets re- Cal Droga gets really into this. He, like, leans in. He's, like, watching it. Everybody clears out while these two guys are going at it. One guy guts the other guy. Everybody screams. They're super happy. He cuts the, uh, the braid off, so true to form, right? And he tosses the braid off. And then the woman comes up, uh, not just that woman, but a bunch of women come up to the guy who won. And he starts hooking up. Well, Danny... Uh, and Viserys look pretty disturbed by this. And Illyrio leans over to Viserys and says, a Dothraki wedding without at least three deaths is considered a Delafade. <laughs>
1: Cultural differences, you understand.
0: So yeah, we're getting a lot of insight here into what the Dothraki are. And they're they're so culturally different than the folks of Westeros. We get that here in the first uh, episode. Very clear. Um, but it also speaks to how uncomfortable Danny is. Because this is all foreign to her. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think she's even had sex. And the idea that people are just having sex just out in the open on the dance floor of a wedding has to blow her mind.
1: Yeah, it, she, as I said, Amelia Clark does a very good job with respect to these early scenes of just having this permanent look on her face of just being simultaneously detached, and well, the the detached element being a guard from just the massive amount of discomfort she's feeling about what's about ha- about to happen to her. And so she she does very well with these kind of limited expressions because they just show the kind of shell shock her character is in.
0: Yeah, she is. And and I would nominate a Dothraki wedding without at least three deaths is considered a dull affair, the line of the episode. That's pretty strong. It that kind of speaks volumes about what the Dothraki are. Um, but, you know, I think the point of uh, Khal Drogo and Danny sitting on this stage is that people are approaching and giving gifts. Yeah. So the next one is Jorah. Jorah moment he approaches the dulcet tones of england approaches and he gives her some books which he calls the songs and history of the seven kingdoms
2: mm-hmm.
0: he introduces himself as jor mormont of bear island and he says that uh, he served um uh, i guess danny's father and he hopes to continue serving the one true king I'm just talking about Viserys there.
1: I, I, I had forgotten about that line, and it made me have to go do math to see whether it was true. I just kind of forgot how old Jorah is. I mean, he was twenty-eight at the time of the Mad King's Rebe- uh, Robert's Rebellion. The man had probably served the Targaryens in some capacity for years before. He's leaving out the fact that he then was a soldier on behalf of. Robert, of Robert Baratheon and Ned Stark in Robert's Rebellion, fought at both the Battle of the Trident and the Sack of King's Landing, and then earned his knighthood in service to Robert Baratheon when, in the Greyjoy Rebellion. But you know that's all just details. Details. Don't need to go into that right now.
0: <laughs> well, there's a lot more details that he's hiding from Danny at this point. Uh, but you know, he was he, he was, was or Mormont of Bear Island. He had no choice. He had to fight with the Starks, mm-hmm. but anyway, he's there clearly sucking up to them. He gives her these books, but I think it's important that he gives her these books because I don't know how much of the actual history of Westeros that Danny's getting from anyone else. Oh, okay. And I bring this up because in season seven, Danny, uh, knows the story of Tor and Stark, you know, the, the, the King who knelt, mm-hmm. who knelt before, um, you know, Aegon Targaryen. She knew that. She knew that whole story. And I wonder, Spencer, maybe I'm just guessing here, but I wonder if the provision of those books by Jorah actually informed Danny about that story. It, and she wouldn't have had that backstory when she met John had he not given her that gift. It's very possible.
1: I mean, it. it I, I think that's a very good possible interpretation. She may have also known about it from her own... Well, actually, she wouldn't have had much necessarily education in her own Targaryen history. She was straight up exiled like within a few months month of being born. So, yeah, that's actually very possible that she learned a lot of what she knows about the history of Westeros from this very meaningful and valuable gift that Jorah gave her.
0: Exactly. And that's why I pointed out, because I think that most people watching this would think that's a throwaway line. But actually, it's probably really important for Dany's development Mm -hmm. and her ambitions later on. It's also
1: notably that what we appear to see is the first gift that she gets. Everything else seems to be like an offering to the cow. This is Jorah very pointedly giving a gift to her.
0: It's not the only gift she gives, though. First of three. Because then, yeah. Well, then Illyrio comes over. First of three. Uh. Well. uh, Oh yeah 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 no 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 no, I got you. Um. See, you didn't get one on me. (laughs) All right. No point for you. Mm -hmm. Like I got all three. Illyrio leans over. He gives her three dragon eggs. Uh. I looked at these. Um. And they. (sighs) They just look bizarre, and he does later say that the ages have turned them into stone, so I guess that makes some sense, but it certainly doesn't look like an egg to me. It looks more ornamental, Mm -hmm. and I think that's probably what Illyrio thinks they are, Yeah, is that they may or may not be actual dragon eggs, but they're really just, at this point, something that she can display to point to her history as a Targaryen.
1: And even as ornamental, they are a kingly gift. I mean, this is the kind of gift that you could buy substantial estates with in terms of how valuable even still solidified stone dragon eggs are illyrio is very much representing his loyalty to their cause with this kind of gift
0: yeah do you uh spencer do you remember where illyrio says the dragon eggs are fun uh
1: from the lands beyond a shy didn't they
0: Shadowlands beyond a shy yeah. exactly uh then the third gift i didn't forget it um drogo uh he gets a uh, drogon he gets a, a drogo sorry cal drogo yeah. he gets up and he, he walks danny over to a white horse and that's the gift he has for her danny wants to say thank you she asks her Dora, how do i say thank you in dothraki jorah says there's no word for thank you in dothraki oh, which is a great detail
1: that, that is a great and terrifying detail a culture that has no concept of that kind of acknowledgement of appreciation is a terrifying culture in many ways.
0: That had to blow her back a lot, right? Yeah.
1: Again, she she was actually having a good moment there for a second of where, oh, we're having a moment. He gave me a very tender gift. I'll I'll connect emotionally back with him. Oh, I literally can't do that because their culture doesn't have a way of conceptualizing it. (laughs) This is my world now.
0: (laughs) yeah so that's problematic and speaking of problematic uh we've got our first rape scene of the series uh-huh. um, sad that you say first yeah, it, uh
1: wait, isn't it yeah no i just said sad that again this is the kind of show where we have to say it's the first rape scene of the <laughs> series
0: uh, Right. like we had to say this is the first instance of a brother inappropriately touching his sister. <laughs> what show have we become fond of sir uh yeah well so it's kyle and danny uh and you know to your point this is very different in the books i don't think that danny was raped in the books she was a Um, woman participant i'm not sure why the showrunners felt the need to turn this into a rape scene i don't like that they did mm -hmm. Um, it's just harder to watch and i don't think it adds anything to the plot
1: and I can, I can. Should we go into this now, or should I save it for a book nerd bitching? Might as well just go into it now. We're talking about it. Um, I. It is a notable change. It's one of the things of where she arrives. Very much similar setting of where they're on. They're on the cliff. She's terrified out of her gourd. She's trying to connect with him. Indeed, the only word he appears to know is no. Which again, no. their language doesn't have thank you. And the only word in her language she knows is no. None of those say good things. Um, no. <laughs> uh, but as we saw here he has apparently very little regard for what her feelings or how she feels about this. In the books he's noticeably and shockingly tender. He's very much making an effort to make sure she's comfortable with things and as he's very much trying to make her comfortable, he's very much making about her getting into the moment making this a joint experience between the two of them she starts to pull back for a second and he stops and cocks ahead of her, and says with a very obvious question mark at the end of it, no. As he's clearly wanting to establish her consent. And he's strongly implying that if she's not comfortable with it right now, he'll stop. And she says yes. It's actually a very active, affirming moment for her, of where all of this has been the other people planning for her future, and at this moment, she's claiming it for herself. So it's very, very different. It very much sets up a different way of how their relationship is founded. Now, why did they do this? This is a big change. One of the biggest changes over the course of the series of the of the of this episode, it's a possibly the biggest. Um, I think in some ways it's tying into some of the same changes they also made for Catelyn. Of where Catelyn, notably in the books, is actually okay and encouraging that Ned go south. Which is starkly different from what we see here. I kind of actually prefer yeah. I prefer what they did with Danny in the books, and I actually kind of prefer what they did with Catelyn here on the show. But the reason that they did it this way with respect to them is to maintain a tonal consistency and a more obvious narrative arc. Of course, the next time we see Catelyn after the end of this episode, she's very much obviously opposed with Ned going south because of what's going to happen to Bran. And she's the same way in the book, where she shifts and changes her view because she doesn't want Ned to leave now in this moment that Bran's been hurt. And so they change that so she's consistent so they can be, and for the audience, an easier narrative arc where she maintains a consistent emotional response. In with respect to Danny, I think in many ways that they want to have her have a more obvious build in her strength over the course of the season. They want her to start low, to everything to be against her, to this all be put upon her, so that when she very much starts claiming her mantle later, it feels more like a more triumphal uh, hero's journey kind of story. So it's just easier for the audience to emotionally accept it and go with it. I don't necessarily agree with their, with their thoughts here. They've trusted the audience enough to follow plot points. I would have hoped that they would trust the audience to also follow the fact that characters can have different and varying emotional responses over time, and that still work. But I understand why they did it. It makes it easier to follow and easier to get into where the characters are where they're going when they don't have peaks and valleys with respect to their emotional response.
0: Yeah, I just think they're playing on the sort of virgin victim trope. Yeah. Um as opposed to allowing what like you pointed out in the in the, the canon is a empowering moment for Danny and they reduce her to just being a rape victim. I would like to point out uh, very disturbingly um, I watched the, uh, I went to the Game of Thrones concert experience. If you, have, you haven't heard my review of that, that's a separate pod. Check it out. I tried to do a good job with it, but at this scene, we, literally when Cal is pulling her arm off of her own breast where she's trying to hide, mm-hmm. the crowd erupted in a cheer. The <laughs> fuck? I know. I looked at my wife. I was like, what the hell's going on? I mean, obviously everyone likes the relationship that they eventually got to. Not there so though. that's where... It, I know, but that's where it comes from. But I was like, wow, I'm, I am in an arena of people who just cheer to rapes. <laughs> okay.
1: they may I also just want to simplify it of where I said so after this scene, Danny then spends the rest of the time traveling and drug Druggos no longer caring as much about making their first moment and the rest of their moments as well, the rest of their moments as magical as the first moment was. So she actually does get pretty low and pretty down before the, she then comes into her own and mounts him rather than the other way around uh and very much Ooh. embraces her own sexuality and it works okay in the books because you're just following her whole journey and seeing her get loaned and come back the show just very much wanted it to be a much more consistent up arc rather than have to deal with changes and changes in tone but i, yeah, I but agree that, it, it, you
0: know it, and not to spend too much time on this yeah. but i do think that if you you've read the books they did before they started the show obviously you know you got some more rape scenes coming I have. right you don't need to add any more to it. And, you know, of course, this comes up in later seasons and a lot of criticism of the show is like, you know, you could find ways to not do so much raping. <laughs> that would be nice. And this would be one of them. Yeah. But anyway. All right. Uh, on uh, onward, we cut back to Winterfell. Uh, Tyrion is waking up from a, a, a pretty serious bender. I think he wakes up like in the horse stall or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, hay on the side of his face. He comes out. Uh, He sees Sandor Clegane, the Hound, and they start talking about, you know, basically Tyrion's drinking and whoring and Tyrion tries to brag on himself that, you know, I have a lot of women, my spear never misses or whatever it is. And Sandor rightly calls out, well, of course you don't miss if you're paying for it. Right. (laughs) Um, but I like the, you know, the conversation between the two of them because it establishes they have a rapport and that plays out in later episodes and seasons.
1: I also made a note of how much the hounds makeup changes over the course of this show.
0: Agreed. Agreed. It's the, the, the scar on the side of his face and the, the area that's not growing hair is much more pronounced now than it is in later seasons.
1: It's much more horrific here. I kind of actually prefer it this way. Oh, it's meant, it's meant to be a key aspect of his character that he is fundamentally brutally scarred. And so it's kind of like what they did with the Phantom of the Opera in every movie version of where the massive disfigurement just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because you want to be able to ship that character with various other people without them being horrified.
0: Well, and it, you save money. And they made yeah. the same sort of decision with Tyrion after the Battle of Blackwater. Very right? much so. In the books, he loses his nose. But they're like, well, we have Peter Dinklage. <laughs> He's extremely <laughs> handsome. Yeah. We're not cutting his nose off. We're not paying for that. Uh, that's not happening. Very much so. Very much um, so. Yeah, but but good point. I, I noticed that as well. And then you cut to King Bobby B and Ned. And they're talking. And it's clear that Ned has already said yes to being handed the king. And they're going out hunting. And I, the thing that... <laughs> That, uh, that I noticed about this scene is King Bobby B, and we all know these guys, right? Um, me and you have a mutual friend. We won't say his name, but he's one of these guys that one of these tough dudes who gets crazy drunk, stays up super late, eats a ton of food, and the next morning they want to go hunting. Well, <laughs> screw those outdoors guys. Outdoors activity. I'm not that guy at all. The next day I want to like Netflix and, and, and eat hamburgers but there are these guys that they go out they they stay at a bar forever and the next morning they're like all right let's go fly fishing right yeah (laughs) this is what king bobby b is he clearly had planned this he's like hey ned let's let's party let's have the feast and the next morning sun up we're gonna go hunt and that's what they're doing
1: and i do enjoy the touch of where we find out in this scene very casually that ned has accepted the offer and I do enjoy how much Robert recognizes and wants Ned to, uh, wants Ned to be aware, how much he knows this is hurting Ned to accept this, how much he knows mm-hmm. how much Ned is giving up to do this, and how much Robert appreciates it. Your first movement is his last loyal friend.
0: Yeah. And that that speaks to the um, the advice that Mr. Lewin was giving Ned, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, Mr. Lewin is spot on. He said, you know, you're probably one of the last people he can trust. And Robert drops that on him. He says, yeah, you are. And by the way, this is sober, Robert, right? This is the morning, Robert. Yeah. <laughs> so he's speaking from the heart here. Uh, and I think he's yeah, I think he's telling the truth. I think he really thinks that Ned is about the last person he can trust. And I do think he, he very uh, sincerely appreciates the sacrifice that Ned is making. uh but anyway that's the end of that scene and then we cut to bran who is uh increasing my heart rate yet again uh by climbing (laughs) in very precarious areas uh he clearly is good at climbing but man it makes me uncomfortable and he's climbing up this tower and he hears a woman gasping uh doesn't know what it is um and spencer when i'm done with this explanation i'd like you to draw the parallel between how this uh is portrayed in the books and in the show because i think the pov nature point of view uh nature of how the books are written make it much more interesting in the the books than it is the show Mm -hmm. but uh he hears a woman's gasping and he 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 looks in a window to see jamie having sex with cersei now we knew from earlier in the episode that these two have some sort of secret we didn't know what it was now this is the big reveal is that what they were worried that john Aaron potentially could have told king bobby b is that the two of them twins (laughs) are in a sexual relationship with each other yep uh yeah uh he looks pretty confused uh again uh, there's a parallel there with how the books portray this cersei sees him screams he saw us he saw us jamie runs over grabs him he saw us he saw us i heard you the first time how old are you 10 you're a pretty good climber Bran is really shaken here doesn't know what to do jamie looks over at cersei says the things i do for love precious Bran out of the window down he goes End of episode all right so oh. uh, I- i'd like to hear your thoughts on the scene obviously but I-, I keep referencing it i just love how the books portray this i think you'd be more eloquent than no, me no, no. explaining it uh, fire away i'm putting you on
1: the on the on the mark for this we haven't heard often for you uh, have, a, have a strong preference a strong view about the books tell me tell me what you have to say and i will chime in myself
0: oh i feel like this is a trap i feel like i'm gonna misstate something all right i'll, <laughs> I'll give it a try i'll call you on it don't worry um, yeah, no shit. Uh, so in the books, it's from Bran's point of view. Mm-hmm. And so he's climbing and he hears something and he kind of goes up to, to investigate it. And how he describes what's happening, he says they're wrestling. <laughs> he doesn't know what sex is or what sex looks like. Yeah, he's and seven so from this in team, the books, right? He's, like, he's Yeah, I think he's seven. Yeah, They aged him up to 10 in the show. And he doesn't know what it is. So he just says that the queen and her brother are wrestling. Mm-hmm. And so he is genuinely confused as to why they would be upset that he saw them. (laughs) Because he wrestles with Arya, he wrestles with Rob and and John and and the rest of them, he doesn't understand. And I I think that's very effective, because when you tell a story from a seven-year-old's perspective, that's probably how that seven-year-old would interpret those events.
1: He's very confused and baffled by what's going on. At first first I think he doesn't even fully recognize who they are, because he's met them like once before. Uh, he just sees two blonde people kind of vaguely wrestling on the floor. And I feel like if they, if um, Jamie and Cersei had played this out differently, it would eventually led to Bran kind of asking Jamie, you know, how do you defeat her in wrestling? Because always kicking my ass. I, can you give me
0: any tips on this? It is interesting because they do assume that the seven-year-old boy knows what he's seen, which I think is, they, you know, that's not a given. And we know, uh, because of the point of view st- uh, storytelling uh, from brand's perspective is that he really doesn't know what's going on it, it, the books are, and so that, that that makes it all the more like sort of heartbreaking yeah when you're reading the book because he doesn't know what's happening to him or why he's in trouble or why he shouldn't have looked in the window
1: yeah it's it, it important the point of view perspective is huge in the books and it's something the show was never able to do and you could i don't think you really practically could do on the show and so it led to necessary changes in how they depict things and even how they characterize certain characters just to make them work emotionally to connect with the audience both Cersei and Jamie will later become point of view characters. I think they both become point of view characters. I think Jamie's in book three. I think Cersei's not until like book four. Um, so until then, we're only ever seeing them through the eyes of the characters and these other characters. And as you said with this scene, it just makes it all the more tragic that they felt the need to do this when they could have said anything and Brandon would have just been okay and just kept climbing. None of this was right. necessary. <laughs>
0: No, I agree. I, I do think there's a there's a scenario that they could have played out, wherein Bran could have thought this was par for the course and moved on, yeah. or even you know Jamie could have been like, "This is our little secret," and who knows? A seven year old boy would probably be like, "Okay, I got a secret. That's cool, yeah. right?" And and if he if he tells someone, who the hell's gonna believe him, it, right?
1: <laughs> we, we don't know. I mean, it's interesting later, and this is just so Cersei. She actually attacks Jamie for doing it. She's like, "I didn't want you to do that. I just, you know, we would have brought him in. We would have talked to him, and it would have been fine." And she was just looking at her and said, yeah, yeah. When you repeated twice, he saw us and looked at me like that. Clearly you didn't want me to push him out the window. Sure. Cersei. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, Cersei had the, uh, the opinion that they should have brought him in and talked to him. Mm-hmm. The second she heard he didn't die.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cersei's a that's... fair weather fan by any definition.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's when she, uh, she developed that, uh, perspective. Okay. We have finished our recap, Spencer. Any more general takes you have about the episode before we jump into Best Line?
1: Ah, uh, no, I think we're ready to go. I mean, just as would you say again how much fun it is to go back to season one?
0: Oh man, it's uh, season one is amazing. Um, you know, they do more with less, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, from a production standpoint. Um, but they have so much rich material to draw from, and they do it very well, which I know you're going to get into in Book Nerd Pitching. Yeah. Um, but oh. yeah, I love season one. I'm glad we're doing it. I'm looking forward to uh, the rest of the season recap.
1: All right. Well, let's go Let's go on to Best Quotes. Do you have, do you have one to start us off with?
0: Uh, yeah, I'll start one. Um, he won't be a boy forever. Winter is coming.
1: Uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I'm going to offer one before that just because I enjoy how condescending it is. Is uh, that little uh, lieutenant that's commanding the two other watchmen looking over at them as they've come across the now perfectly pristine snow and just looks to him and says, Your dead men seem to have moved camp.
0: Yeah. Um, don't look away. Father will know if you do. Uh, that's a good one.
1: Uh, I'll follow that up with uh, the man, Ned, immediately after that scene, the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. Which is just so perfectly yeah. stark <laughs> philosophy right there.
0: Lord Stark, there are five pups, one for each of the Stark children. To die a wolf the sigil of your house, you are meant to have them.
1: Good one, good one. I'll offer, uh, I think Ned says this twice, but uh, a madman sees what he sees. It's an interesting philosophical point, because it, it, it strongly suggests that Ned thinks he's being truthful, and that he did see what he says he sees, just that it was through the eyes of madness.
0: Uh, Robert will choose a new hand of the king. Good one. Someone to do his job for him. One of those fucking bowlers and hunting whores
1: <laughs> Dot dot dot. Or is it the other way around? Yeah. Uh, continuing. Uh, this is this is both a line and a gesture. But Robert, when he sees Ned again for the first time in nine years, you've got fat, and Ned just gives the perfect look at him. It looks him right in the eye and then just looks down at his belly. He's like. You talking to me? You're you're one to talk right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the next one. Um, next one I was gonna say. How about this one? I'm not trying to honor you. I'm trying to get you to run my kingdom while I eat, drink, and haul myself to an early grave.
1: Good one. Very good one. Uh, one before, right immediately before that. Uh, also, Robert, you remember me at sixteen? All I wanted to do was was crack skulls and fuck girls. He showed me what was what, and then was just dripping sarcasm. I. Oh, don't look at me like that. Not his fault I didn't listen. <laughs> uh,
0: so this is from a uh, a scene that you um, very rudely told me I skipped. Uh, this is Robert talking about Rhaegar Targaryen. Oh, yeah. My dreams I kill him every night.
1: Yeah, I, I would even just do the full quote around that one. Of uh, did you have to bury her in a place like this? She should have been on a hill somewhere with the sun and clouds above her. Ned responds, "She was my sister. This is where she belongs, and with just abject pain, she belonged with me." And then, continuing in my dreams, I kill him every night. You can see. It's
0: just, done, your grace. The Targaryens
1: are gone. Yeah, not all of them. Uh, it, it, there you go. So, right. wonderful, sim- uh, tying into the the pain that still propels Robert's character. Uh,
0: um.
1: uh, Let's see here. You got another one? or I got, I got a few more we can still do. Oh, I got plenty. Okay, what's next?
0: Let me give you some advice, bastard. Never forget what you are. The rest of the world will not. Wear it like armor. It cannot be used to hurt you.
1: Good one. Good uh, Sound advice from Tyrion. Uh, one advice he doesn't fully follow himself, by the way, which I like that, too. Uh, here's one.
0: This, this, is quick, this is a quick... But he knows he should.
1: Yeah. This is a quick one by Olyro Mopatas, of uh, where... Lyra makes a it's like an off joke about, it. I don't think you should tell Caldrogo uh, that. And Viserys bristles and says, do you take me for a fool? And Lyra responds, I take you for a king. Kings lack the caution of ordinary men. It's just such a delightful, quick cover.
0: <laughs> yeah, I thought that was incredible. Um, how about, you know, it's simple, but I, I think it deserves uh, recognition. A different time. A different king.
1: It's a good line. It's it's a good line. They're both giving him very sound advice, and that's just a wonderful code of the position that um Meister Lewin is taking. Uh, you hated this line, but it is such a line that reveals aspects of a character. I would let his whole tribe fuck you. All forty thousand men and their horses too, if that's what it took. If you need a line that more effectively conceptualizes Viserys, I don't think you can find it elsewhere in
0: this episode. Or series. Yeah um finally I have the things I do for love Oh great line great line
1: uh I would offer a couple more uh just real quick
0: do, do, do. I got one more after that actually okay uh
1: I'll, I'll offer Neds I don't find in uh, Ned's in uh, Jamie's exchange I don't fight in tournaments no getting a little old for it I don't fight in tournaments because when I fight a man for real I don't want him to know what I can do. Well said. That's a great little exchange.
0: Ooh, nice Jamie Lannister. I try. I like that. Uh, all dwarves are bastards in the Father's A Great line.
1: Great line. Uh, I will end it with a Dothraki wedding without at least three deaths is considered a Dell affair.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's good. Okay. I like it. All right.
1: This is yours. What's it going to be?
0: Best line of the episode. Tension building. Season one, episode one. Winter is coming. The man who passes the sentence should swing my soul.
1: It, it has to be. It has to be. It. It's the ultimate Stark line. And it's one that resonates so well with the characters going forward, too. You can see how much it governs John's decision-making from here on out.
0: Absolutely. I mean, and, and honorable mention, of course, would have been All Dwarves Are Bastards in the Father's own Very much so, yeah. But I think you, you have to go with this one because of how Stark central this episode is. Yeah. Right? You spend most of the time in the North. You're learning the Stark family. Clearly, through the first book, through the first season, the Stark is the, the Starks are the most important family, um, and that really governs the ethos of their lord. So, had to be it.
1: Mm-hmm. I fully agree. It tells you so much about what their family stands for and what Ned truly embodies in terms of his. You can mark a ding right here, right now, if you want, but it does of how much he very. Where where so many other people view feudal societies, what the various peasants and everything else can bring to them, Ned views his role as the he who is supporting the world. He is supporting his kingdom, and he is willing to take whatever necessary to carry out his duty in that regard.
0: Agreed. I mean you know you have to establish I mean you know spoiler alert Ned doesn't survive the other season <laughs> no! and in order for <laughs> in order for that shock to have emotional resonance in the in the audience like you have to establish him as a good guy as somebody of 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 strong moral character and I think they do that very very well in this first episode and that line uh, is symbolic of it so very deserving of best line of the episode Season one, episode one. Now we switch to the segment called book nerd ditching. Spencer, take it away. I'm
1: going to keep this relatively brief as said, you know, we, we've talked for quite a bit as is, but um, we've discussed over the course of this, how much we adore the first season and how much it sticks closely to the books. And that's very much true with respect to the general plot progression. In a lot of the scenes, most of the scenes are word for word, in at least some capacity. Several of the characters though are changed in various ways. Most of which I really don't mind. We talked about um, how, on several times, the show will try to keep characters consistent in terms of their emotional responses, like with Catelyn, like with Danny, and how they frame the scenes as a result of it, just to make it easier for the reader to follow their trajectory that they want for them over the course of the season. And so that makes sense, and it's not—it has varying degrees of how large of a change as it is, as you talked about the scene uh, changing Danny and uh, Drogo's first one-on-one interaction with each other is pretty substantial and very controversial as a result of it but i understand at least why they did um there's other characters that they changed just simply out of necessity some of them are just simply because they couldn't ever cast somebody that the book describes physically you're never going to find a six foot six built like a titan even though that he's now massively overweight character to play robert baratheon and you lose a little bit from that, but I also now could never imagine anyone but Mark Addy playing the role. So, several times over the course of this, they will care- What? Sorry?
0: I just said agree. Oh, yeah.
1: And several of and the several other characters are, don't necessarily exactly mirror how their book, book counterparts are described. Everybody's younger. Fine. They age them up, so it would be more appropriate, and we'd be able to more associate them, see them through a modern lens. Uh, Ned is described as being much more nondescript, much more very plain, very dour, very dark, which Sean Bean could never look th- or act that way. That's just not who he is.
0: Right. Yeah, and that, that that stuck out to me, too. I think Sean Bean is more attractive than Eddard was supposed to be, right?
1: Very, mu- very much so. Uh, and if we talk about Peter Dinklage is miles ahead of the twisted monstrosity that poor little Tyrion <laughs> is described as. Um, yeah. But they're so well acted and so well embody the characters, it doesn't really matter. I mean the physicality can inform you to a great degree about who the character is and what they represent, but when a person is able to still represent them so well and still bring the character to the screen, it you you don't you don't you don't really dwell in those details that much. So I I don't think there's any character that's physically depicted over the course of the show that I it was a deal breaker to me in this first season. Many of them are different, but There's there's both an element of practicality and there's also just an element of it doesn't matter when they're so well acted. We talked about, briefly, Ned. Ned is substantially changed as a character, but for a very obvious reason. He still embodies all the stark virtues. He still has the same uh, emotional responses. He still has the same close connections with his family in his own way. And he still has the same war that's constantly under the surface. But Ned is a point-of-view character. He's the main point-of-view character over the course of the first book. So we see all of his internal commentary almost all the time. So as the reader, we get a very much in-depth dive to this person who, his public face is very dour. A lot of his family, including his wife, talk about how they know how much he loves them, because they've seen his actions, they've known him for years, but how long it took for them to warm up to him. Robert... Talks about how long it took for them to establish a relationship. They're just now as close as any as you can imagine in the world. But Ned is so internally wrapped up, is so dour, is so generally quiet. I, mean, I think I think in one story when other characters talk about, it, they even refer to him as the Quiet Wolf, as just his nickname identifier. They couldn't really do that with this show because we don't get the internal commentary to see the more well-rounded aspect of his character that we would if we've been around him for years, know naturally. So they made him a little bit more carefree, a little bit more open, more willing to share a joke, more willing to emotionally bond, obviously, just so that we as the audience who can't see inside his head all the time can understand who the true man is that otherwise just has so many layers that he puts up to shield himself from that kind of level of emotional connection to the world. So I fully understand and I fully embrace their change just due to the nature of the medium, is that... There are very few movies or shows that can work with you getting a constant running commentary of what's going on in a character's head. So I understand why they did that. I agree with um, the change in the framing of his position. Would that be uh, your perspective, Lee? Do you have a different one on how they've differently portrayed Eddard Stark in the course of this series?
0: (laughs) You have like three PhDs in Eddard Stark. Uh, So, no, Spencer, I think you're spot on. And I give you a lot of shit for your love of Eddard and how you, you bring him up, but... You're actually right, like, just, you know, I'll admit it this once, because he, he's, a, um, he's one of the, the only truly good people we see in the series, and his, uh, his impact is felt uh through the books at least to where we've gotten now and certainly through the show i mean even in the last episode of season seven they were quoting him right, right. so he is his presence is still there he's a great character uh and i agree with you about the differences between the book and the show i don't necessarily mind the changes yeah i do think that a lot of the i will point out though i, do, I think that a lot of the audience um, of the book when the show was announced and the initial casting news came out were really, really reluctant uh, to uh, support casting Sean Bean simply because he had been in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. But I think it took one episode for me anyway to be like, okay, nope, he's Ned Stark. Yeah,
1: it took no time at all. I mean, some of the first scene of when, I, mean, I think the scene that really just fully effectively conceptualized him was the scene of the execution of Just him quietly mm-hmm. reciting the the the, uh, the uh, sentence him performing his duty and then him turning to brand telling him what he wanted him to get out of this In that moment Boromir was blown from my mind. I didn't see him again over the course of 10 episodes of the show
0: Completely agree. All right uh, Production uh, a little behind the scenes of the production of Game of Thrones. You want to know a quick fact about Sean Bean? I'd love to He was scared of flying and he's especially scared of flying in a helicopter so some of the scenes during uh season one where they are up on high cliffs um and they're filming and you may not necessarily see that they're up on a cliff but they are for whatever reason he refused to take the helicopter up and would go on half day long hikes to get to the shooting location
1: jesus christ sean (laughs) the insurance they (laughs) must have on that man to let him do, uh, do that
0: yeah, but anyway, that's what he did. He never he never flew in the helicopter during the entire production. Did not know that. That's fascinating.
1: Uh,
0: that's what I'm here for. All right, uh,
1: la- last little tidbit for me um, is, and this is one another scene that was kind of substantially changed. And I would just be curious to see your in- your interpretation about which one was more successful or not. It just embodies uh, how much even very off bit characters who have no purpose but to die. George R. R. Martin spends a lot of time both developing them in the scene and then spending pages upon pages setting up their background with various family members you meet, various little tidbits you hear about their history. But the opening scene, as we said, is three Night's Watchmen who are going north a arranging, presumably to, here, to follow and track a wildling band, only to find them dead. We see with the two more veteran members that they are very much Northerners, they're very much lower class in their accents and their bearing, and very much experienced. Their commander, on the other hand, is everything of the annoying, poofy, priss southern lord that we see embodied on the screen. This is an interesting depiction in the sense that it is perfectly accurate to what the books depict, but not complete. This man, who the show I don't think ever actually gives him a name, I don't even, I, did, I only actually need to look the credits, whether they even say who it is. Um, but this man is Weimar Royce. That last name may sound familiar to, be, to you because Lord Royce is a character on the show. A character in the sense that they've named a character Lord Royce and he's from the same place as the character in the books, but he's still Lord Royce. He is, in the books, fully known as Bronze Jan Royce. He is one of the Lords of the Vale, one of the most powerful of the Lords of the Vale, and becomes one of the leaders of the Lords Declarant that are opposing Peter Baelish's essential coup d'etat of um, emerging into a position of power after Lysa. Takes her flight out of the moon door. Mm. What's, what's interesting about him is that we often view the north as being entirely separate from the culture of the southern kingdoms. That the first men are up there and their culture persists, and everything else down below is just you know Andals and Seven Gods and whatever else. Not true at all. There are still very much pockets of what we view as profoundly northern or. First Men culture, Old Gods culture, that still persists in the South, and one of them is very much embodied in House Royce. House Royce is ancient, like disappearing into time immemorial, old as the Starks, maybe even older in some ways, and they've long been powerful lords in the Vale of Arryn, which is now known as the Vale of Arryn since the Andals, which are the Arryns, invaded and took it over from the First Men. Though they were conquered after an impressive series of battles and victories, the Royces persisted and, stubbornly, kept to the old ways. They still worship the old gods. They still have profoundly strong connections with the North. Bronzian and his sons have been to Winterfell several times to the point that Sansa is worried that Lord Royce is going to recognize her because he's met her like twice. This is also the reason that we normally don't see lords, unless they are northern lords, go join the Watch. The fact we've got a southern lord again shows the connections that the Royce family have to the north. Wemyss Royce is the third son of the Royce family. He has no chance of inheriting. As a matter of fact, his second, his, his older brother Robar himself goes off on his own to try to make his own claim because in this very feudal war, lord, first son basically gets everything, and every other son just tries to make do however best they can. Hence, part of the reason we think that Benjen went off and joined the Night's Watch. So. Wimar, given his family's very much loyalty to the old gods, to the point that Bronzian still wears bronze armor with old, old gods and children of the forest runes carved into it, which everyone assumes, given this kind of magical protection. That's how much they are still steeped in the old ways and the old faith. He's gone off and joined the Watch, willingly. His father, His father goes with him on this journey. Stop at Winterfell, defeats both Ned Stark and uh, Roderick Cassell and Emile, which is a little off detail, and leads him to the wall, where he, being a lordling, actually having his own gear and kit, is there about six months before he demands to lead his own ranging. and Jor Mormont, uh, Jorah's father, immediately knows that this is a shit idea. He's been here six months, he has no prior experience. He's probably a pretty skilled fighter, but he has no other experience in actually specifically ranging, which is what he would be doing on this expedition. Can't let him do this. But he's the son of a very powerful noble lord. I don't really have much of a choice in the matter, do I? Because Lord Royce is still a supporter of the Wall. He probably still sends funding and other things to help them out. So he can't risk offending him. So he does what he can and assigns him two very experienced rangers to go with him, hoping that they can at least... Direct things in the appropriate manner. The scene plays out very similar to what we saw from there, of where they come across. I think it's, I think I think in the books, rather than a dismembered corpses, it's uh, eight eight bodies of where we can't really tell if they're alive or not. They're just kind of frozen, rigid, and not moving. And so that's part of the reason they want to go investigate further, despite both of the rangers being rightfully freaked out by this. They go and investigate, and as shown, the White Walkers show up. Now, White Walkers are depicted very different physically, whatever else. We can go into that separately. But one of the biggest differences in the scene is what happens to Waymar Royce and how he reacts. Of where, in the show, he's very promptly killed off. It's very much meant to be a horror scene. It's very much meant to be stark and shocking. It's meant to focus on the emotional reactions of the two survivors and, as they try to flee away. Stark. What? You're going to do it every I time I say that. I actually like the word. Um, <laughs> but... Whereas, in the books, Wim Royce has been consistently portrayed over this ranging as being a jackass, as being a very privileged lord, but never being wrong, and never being necessarily unfair. He's a dick, but most of his opinions and views are not wrong. They're actually rather correct, given what he knows. And here in this moment of Wim, the... White Walkers literally come out upon him, and it's not just one, it's like an entire ring of them that start to surround him with a crackling ice sound and full armor, looking like the ethereal beings that they are. As the other two Rangers rightfully freak out and start to run away, with one actually hiding in a tree so we can watch what's about to happen, Waymar Royce pulls his sword. Yells out to them, dance with me, then, and charges in and starts dueling a friggin' demon. These are creatures of myth and legend as horrific beings of evil. And Wimmer Royce pulls his sword and charges in to the grap to the fight. With even this ranger up in the tree who thinks to himself, well, actually sees this and, says, and narrates, he lifted his sword high over his head, defiant. His hands trembled from the weight of it or perhaps from the cold, yet in that moment, Will thought, he was no, a boy no longer, but a man of the Night's Watch. And he duels this thing with its magical sword, with surrounded by these various other White Walkers that are literally laughing at him in these crackling ice voices. And he puts up a fight until his blade is literally shattered by the magic of it. And they rip him apart. And one of the rangers then, as these White Walkers seemingly disappear, comes down from the tree and comes down to the corpse to see if you know there's any chance of him still being alive. There isn't, but he feels obliged and duty-bound to check. As the corpse then rises up before him, and Waymar Royce, with only one glowing blue eye remaining, chokes the life out of them there before us. As you can see, it's an incredibly differently portrayed scene. And it's in some ways trying to say different things at the same time, in terms of what the show is trying to present, what the book is trying to present. You who have seen both, do you have any preferences between the two of them, and how do you feel about what they what they were trying or not trying to do with Waymar Royce in book versus the show? Uh,
0: you know, the, to your point, this was a character that is um, a very small character, but there is some investment in developing them. Of course, I like the book version better. I think that's more nuanced, and I think it tells you more about the White Walkers slash the Whites. Um, and this character than the show version does. I understand why the show didn't spend a lot of time with it mm-hmm. because if you did, it would be very disjointed. Um, you, don't, you don't, I mean, they, even the amount of time they spent. On this scene, a lot of casual fans were like, "What the hell was that? Like, why? No. <laughs> why did you start with that?" So, but if you're asking my personal preference, having read the uh, the books and watched the show, I prefer the the book version of that intro better.
1: And, and it's no condemnation to the show, as we talked about before. The show is very much built on having a consistent arc. They want a build. They want a direction. They want the audience to be able to follow with the river rather than kind of see the various stones that you're jumping between. And I oh think, oh
0: my gosh, metaphors.
1: Met- I think it work I think that's a, na- a nature of, a, of television format is that it everyone expects and kind of wants to get into that flow and I think in some ways the show with how they did it fits more naturally into what works better in a show format of where it's not meant to offer too much complexity. it's meant to be a cold open which gives you a consistent narrative horrific build to end in silence and then comes with that massive musical score attached to it. They've had various coming backs and forths and various, i wouldn't say necessarily tonal inconsistencies but what don't fit into that kind of clear arc it would have been hard i don't think it would have worked as well for the show so i fully understand what they did and i endorse it i just kind of still enjoy the nuance and how much the royce family is important to the books and how much in many ways this kind of scene sets the tone of how much they're going to be given short shift over the course of the show
0: okay So the ruling on that is uh, neither one of these were book nerd bitching. Um, So therefore, it does not go to the floor of the Congress. These are administrative rules passed by the agencies uh, without a vote by any elected official. Good work, Spencer. They are now both regulatory requirements.
1: I appreciate it. I I feel like in many ways this presentation was the equivalent of me reading a phone book for my own filibuster. But, you know, I, I felt duty bound to do it.
0: God bless you for doing so. Anything else you want to cover today, Spencer?
1: Just that I'm looking forward to the next episode and talking about you with it. Oh, hey, buddy! The dog is back. Let's <laughs> let's let's end on that note, my friend.
0: Okay. Well, this was another podcast from the G O T Got Questions podcast. We're available on the Mangum Talks podcast channel. It's a channel of uh, devoted friends uh, who have a variety of podcasts. One of which is Mangum Reads, led by BJ Spencer. And occasionally, for really no reason, me. Then also Whiskey on the Weekends, which is myself, uh, BJ Spencer, and Levi. It's a lot of fun. We sit around. We drink whiskey. We talk about the things uh, that are on our mind, uh, issues of the day. Uh, if you haven't seen that before, check it out. It's both at, at www.mangumtalks.com, also on iTunes and Stitcher. We also have an NBA pod coming up soon with myself and Levi Baxter, who's also on Whiskey on the Weekends. So check that out. Uh, one thing I should have been saying all along, but I <laughs> haven't because I'm new to this, is you should rate us on iTunes and uh, Stitcher. That actually helps us uh, show up in people's search results. It moves us up lists. So if you if you listen to us, you like us, please rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. Finally, I'll say uh, follow all things Mangum Talks on Twitter at, Man- at Mangum Talks and Facebook. Uh, we're at Facebook.com slash Mangum Talks. Finally. Uh, If you want to give us some feedback, uh, you can give us direct feedback at www.mangumtalks.com. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see the button called Contact Us. Click that. Give us your thoughts. Give us your questions. Give us your criticisms. We'll take it all in. Other than that, GOT Got Questions podcast. We see you next week for Season 1, Episode 2 The King's Road. See you then, Spencer.
1: Till then, everybody.